I deny everything but what I have all along admitted. The design on my part to free the slaves. Are we ending up on the on the gallows? <laughs> uh, well, the kind of we have. To I mean, it's possible. So that's why we gotta keep growing and get lots and lots of targets, because that's how they get you. When there's only like a hundred or two hundred, you need like we need thousands. So they got it's gotta be like they gotta really like whack mo like that. So so we can like. <laughs> I sound like dead by daylight. At least it teaches teamwork. But all right, let's get started. Mm-hmm. All right, so welcome to the John Brown Leftist. We hope we don't end up on the gallows. <laughs> so I'm just so excited to be here with the group. So this is kind of like a rotating cast because we make this very easy for our for our co-hosts because everybody has families, everybody has things to do. So we might see people here one week and then not next week, but then they're back. So that's kind of how we do things because this is all volunteer. Nobody gets paid. So we have to respect each other's time and families. Family is very important. So all righty then, I'm going to get started with our, we got so many new guests. Oh my God. So I'm going to go ladies first for new guests. So we're going to go with Patricia. Patricia has come and joined us all the way from the chat to become an accomplice. Welcome. From where? From the chat. From the <laughs> chat. Yeah. yeah. From the chat. <laughs> yeah. I just landed. I just happened upon this reset race and I popped in there and she's sitting there by herself. And I said, I just really, I thought this is awesome and we just started talking so and i realized and it was before actually i stumbled in there that i just started thinking this is really not fair <laughs> it's beyond fair and something needs to be done so i guess that's why i found you because it was time for me to listen to that although you know i've heard of reparations before and i'm very for equality for everyone especially black people because of so much for so long so um, and well, thank you. I've been looking for a way to help in general I kind of retired early recently for the SSI and it's like a UBI now so I'm like I can put her in my shop and I could do some tech work and I can do something like this and so that's really exciting to me Awesome. Like, what can I do to help? <laughs> you know? Well, you're here with us now. So this is yeah, the first yeah. step. I appreciate you. And I think it's just a matter of the, the more time you spend with the more time we spend together, the more all of us will grow and the better we are at reaching out to our communities to try to get them to bridge the gap, right? Like we have to be a bridge to start bringing our people together. 
So next up, I'm going to do age before beauty. So it's going to be Bantu. <laughs> Even though he's still really young, he's the second youngest here. So I'm just cracking jokes. Um, hello, my name is Bantu Otaku, or you can call me Rara, whatever, you know, suits your um, flavor. Um, I am 29, Virgo. I make very amounts, various amounts of content. I love focusing on networking, building bridges, getting people access to like means of educating themselves about different books and theories dealing with black americans or just african people in general um and besides that you know i like making all kinds of content and creating help for a reason that's about it and can you please give people your twitch because you do a lot of educational oh, stuff yeah. on your twitch and you said that you're over there by yourself just kind of reading and documenting things and it's just you yes. like people should come visit you <laughs> so my name is um Bonto Talk. Yeah, it's Bonto Taku on everything. So like if usually if you type Bonto Taku, you're gonna find my name. You're gonna find the link to like my Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, you name it. Or even if you message me on one of my platforms, I will be quick to plug you in. Like I'm low-key kind of streaming now, but you know it's Eric Kabad doing Jill Scott and I'm singing to some visualizers. So you know, like I'm always on the clock inside. Get back to work or whatever but you know come check out the books we're reading from here to equality now and i think we're planning on reading how the irish became white nets because okay. i'm starting to realize a lot of people are not clear on what is whiteness or how whiteness works yes. so i'm planning on having like a lot of critical whiteness study books read on stream and whatnot so you know people can get access to that information or at least you know hear about it and whatnot you know what i mean yes Mm-hmm. No, I love it. Okay. Well, next up is Scorpio. Scorpio is our young firebrand. Like, oh my God. I love talking <laughs> to him. He's got so much information in his head and to be so young, like y'all better watch out. We got to protect Scorpio. <laughs> Don't mess well. with <laughs> He's too smart. We got to make sure he's all right. We got to <laughs> protect Scorpio. Go uh, ahead. I'm, I'm Scorpio. Uh, I'm 22 years old. I ain't always the youngest. I'm always the youngest in everything. I've basically put my uh put my foot in so, like all of a sudden since I became an adult. Um, I I do a lot of uh, learning constantly, and I'm just I'm here because you know I just want to see I just want to see I just want to see my folks you know have like long fulfilling lives. I've been saying that a lot, but like I that's that's really what motivates me to be here and also to see my friends do good too. And it, but I'll be out here. Yep. And Scorpio and Bantu have just joined the Reset Race Negro meeting, which is all just conversations with black folks and guests, but it's mainly gonna be black folks. <laughs> and uh it's going to be a good time over there. So I'm really glad that they've joined us. And me and Scorpio have also been having conversations just because he knows so much stuff. I need to get it out of his brain into y'all because it's ridiculous when you really start talking to him. That's why I got to keep him on topic because he knows so much. He can just, you bring it up, he can go there. It's amazing. So I appreciate all of you guys being here that have just joined us. Now I'm going to get back to our, we're going to get back to our favorite. So Danette, go ahead. <laughs> so I am Danette LaMonica Hudson, and I am happy to be here. Thank you, my dear. Go ahead. Uh, 
so I'm Ida. Um, I'm from Croatia originally via New York City, and now I'm in California. It's been a 30-year journey, but I'm still puzzled by this country, and uh, I'm also happy to be here. Thank you, Ida. All righty, next up, go ahead, Gabriel. Hey, everybody. My name is Gabriel Piamati. I'm on the show from Chicago, Illinois. I'm a reparationist and a John Brown leftist. You're going to understand what that is as you continue to watch. And I'm just happy to be here. All hail King, Ma ah, all hail King Killmonger. Greetings and salutations, everyone. It is I, Joey D. Killmonger. Um, yeah, I'm just here with the John Brown leftist. About to get it in. Um, yeah, AK the fire next time. I am just here to be your gateway drug to James Baldwin. That's it. You know, I love that. Nice. <laughs> All righty, then I'm going next to Jason. Hey, uh, Jason, um, resident, uh, East Bay DSA. I think there's, uh, you know, another as well. Um, other than that, I've been around for a little bit now. I've been on some shows and Learned a lot of stuff, especially with the labor show last week, uh, or the, uh, excuse me, building community, uh, excuse me. Um, and I, I really enjoy the time I have with you guys. So look forward to more conversations. We enjoy having you too, especially because we're going to be dragging you in soon for conversations with that labor book. Because there's a recent, there's a recent race episode that's going to be coming up soon. I, we just haven't decided what week, but that's going to be your week to be on the reset race show. Cool. <laughs> Cool. All right, then. Okay, next up, Mud. Oh, yeah, um, they call me Mud. Um, you can find me on social media, all at Of Lineage. That's Twitter, Instagram, and Clubhouse. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Let's get to the show. Alrighty, and I am Sam, aka the Khaleesi. You can find me on Twitter for now at me 17 trillion, but you know, that may not be for long. But I'm happy to be here with everybody and let's go. So this actually came to me because of Gabriel. I was like, what do you think we should do for this week? And he was just talking about, he's like, I'm really disturbed and upset by this article that I read. So we were just like, we should just discuss it. So I'm gonna go ahead and pull up the article. More than 17,000 deaths caused by police have been misclassified since 1980. Deaths involving police have been greatly undercounted in the United States. And African-American people die in such encounters at three and a half times the rate of whites, according to a new analysis by public health researchers. In an article published Thursday in the medical journal, The Lancet, researchers found that deaths from police violence between 1980 and 2018 were misclassified by 55 and a half percent in the United States vital statistics system which tracks information from death certificates. For most causes of death, the death, the death certificates filled out by a physician is sort of the gold standard, says Chris Murray of the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington, who is one of the study's authors. But he says that in this area, the certificates seem to fall short. They, there is a pretty systemic 
or systematic underrecording of police deaths. That realization isn't entirely new. After the 2014 shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, news organizations started to keep their own tallies of police-related deaths, which turned out to be higher than the government's numbers. What Murray and his co-authors have done, though, is measure the discrepancy between independent tallies and the government data and project it back in time. We've used those relationships of what fraction get underreported to go back and infer, for example, in the 1980s, what was the likely number of police violence deaths, Murray says. The researchers base their inferences on numbers from three open source databases, Fatal Encounters, Mapping Police Violence, and The Guardians Accounted, which they compared with the data from the death certificates. They calculate that the death certificates misclassified the causes of death on more than 17,000 deaths since 1980. If it's legit, it's pretty cool how they can take existing data from a short time frame and work backwards, says Justin Nix, associate professor of criminology at the University of Nebraska. But as a criminologist who studies shootings by police, Nix has a reservation about the underlying data. My concerns with this paper are the same as many that use these crowdsourced databases, he says. He has documented cases where the databases count, for example, domestic violence by off-duty officers as police killings. I'm not saying we don't need to track wait, these. Stop in that? Hold on, wait, wait, wait. Huh? Did they? Can you read that for me? My concerns with this paper are the same as many that use these crowdsourced databases, he says. He has documented cases where the database count, for example, where the databases count, for example, domestic violence by off-duty officers as police killings. The first time in which, uh, when it comes to data and people defining you know, certain things as such, um, it, it occurred with the school shootings years ago when people said that in America, there's all these school shootings happening. While there were some incidents where school shootings happened, they just, they just basically define a school shooting as like somebody firing something at a school. And basically, so when, when I saw one of, the, um, one of the cases in which somebody just shot themselves in the car, they kind of as a school shooting. Like, I, I didn't. I think when people think of school shootings at that time, they was thinking of like, you know, somebody going to school with a firearm and, you know, shooting people in the school, not necessarily just somebody outside, you know, shooting a gun, like at a, at a playground. Like they really said that one school was abandoned and a person shot at school because it was abandoned and they kind of had a school shooting. So it's not the first time this has happened with them, you know, saying that, oh, this is, this is what counts as this. And it's like, that's why I tell people you have to look at how they even classify it as such, because you might be getting some misunderstanding because the way they classify it might be might not be the way that you classify it. Gabriel. Yeah. Um, well, first, I think Justin Nix is kind of an ass because there's nothing kind of cool about any of this. And I'm just not going to like I could spend some time screaming, yelling. Yeah, that word that. stuck out a little bit to me, too, as well. I'm going to. Um, I'll yell at my cat about it in, later. 
Um, but I'm just going to say that's very not cool. And and it's what's weird about. So I have lots of problems with this article, but we'll stay with Justin for a minute. Um, what he is actually saying is there are other cases where there's misclassification and they are uh, research methodologies like this one. Now, I'm not saying that that um, that may not be something to be concerned about. But first of all, it's not framed like that. It's framed like they're indicting this research. There are a lot of problems with individuals who do research in America in traditional methodology because they're white supremacists and liars. So like, I don't read that every time I read a research report through a traditional methodology. Why is this guy allowed to, first of all, say aspects of these 17,000 people's the cause of their deaths being disappeared is cool and then get to say yeah but sometimes when people do research like this there are problems with it well there are you know everyone does something right or wrong that's why it's research you can replicate it if you don't think the data is right or wrong and i i just felt like that that was kind of um shaky at the same time i think scorpio is absolutely right that you know he's he's doing a deep dive i would i would like that kind of analysis in this article, like exactly what kind of misclassification should we be looking for? My broader question is, um, the, there are if there are 17,000 people who have died over the last, you know, generation and a half at the hands of cops, and that was classified in such a way that they, it went away, I want at the top of this story to know how many black people that is. Because the math never through this article, which is one of the more thorough articles, but in any of it, and even in the research itself, the math is never clear on what's the number. So they tell you relative to white people, and then they do some other kind of comparative analysis. But what you never get is of this 17,000, for example, uh, you know, 10,000 are African-American. You know, like I, I want to know how this is breaking down because I think most of us on this in this group suspect that there are patterns beyond just covering for the cops whenever they screw up. My belief is that we're in the midst of, um, you know, of a race war that, that police go out, find black men and murder them. And sometimes women as well, but that they spend a lot of their time doing that. And I think this kind of information potentially reinforces that when you go into the research itself, I looked at the report and I did my best to kind of sift through it, um, but I, I probably need some support in doing that because I may have overlooked something. I couldn't find that data. That seems pretty basic and it wasn't there. And that's a little frustrating to me. I probably um, took up a little more time than I should have, but this is like a super frustrating topic to me. 17, it, that's a huge number. And there's like the analysis isn't here. This is, this is really light reporting for like a, a number that should be on the front page of every major newspaper. It should be the lead story. 17,000 people in America were disappeared. The violence that is controlled by the state disappeared 17,000 people with the collusion, at least of coroners, right? If it's miscategorized, that means another arm of the government then took that, you know, someone came in with a gunshot wound from a firearm from a cop and they said, this is this other thing. And so you have that happening for thousands of people and we're and we're just like, you know, it's cool how they did this data collection. Uh, to me, it's that. Isn't that how white supremacy works, right? Like, I don't want to go. Yep. Um, 
isn't but isn't that how white supremacy works right like see how outrage like you're outraged when you hear this there's no outrage in that article um, at all scorpio dropped the um the the actual um the actual charts but i think they're going to be hard for people to read people didn't understand that uh the open sources like the three and you compare all of them so it's like it's not as if it's ignoring anything like they actually point out what are the open sources missing when they classify stuff and what they're and what the they're uh, i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry i need y'all to see this look at the female rate look at the male rate i love you my sisters but i need us to start protecting our black men we keep talking about stuff but we're not realizing like yes we go through that's that's the appears to be the bold operandi that's what they're choosing to do with the women and that's a whole nother problem we need to have a conversation about because cops will say it's a lie. Cops, I, the young people in Chicago have said that there is a crisis that, that kids, little, little, we're talking about girls really, have been disappeared in Chicago for years and years. And the police say it's not true and the media backs it up. I think all over the country, we're just, um, the, our girls. And, but point blank, it must be hard to kidnap a young black man. Because instead, they it's like they got to put a bullet in them. I don't know. I can't speculate why one versus the other, unless it's also uh, trafficking. Um, but yeah, you're you're right, Sarah. But the, uh, all the open sources, like they can't go back to the 1980s. So that means that they most of them like go back to the 2000s. So the research study actually acknowledges that. So the 1980s is really just the NVSS because they can't go back that far. So, and they compare all of them and see like, how do they capture and where they, where are they missing? And, you know, they also give you um, what we can try to do to have better reporting. I guess the article didn't point that out either. Scorpio, would you say um, in, in your estimation, is this really a report out of the last say 20 years or what, where do you think the real substantial data is in this collection? The real substantial data. I would say, I would say it's probably from a group that probably was collecting all this stuff and keeping track of, you know, the violence from police that's not necessarily from the government. But like you're saying the 80s stuff, there's hardly any, like they probably couldn't collect in, in as no, they, 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 they didn't collect it because they didn't exist at the time. Right. The open so sources. No so they couldn't they couldn't really collect stuff they wasn't there before or they wasn't keeping up. Like they what they do is that they look at stories, they collect stories, they um look at public information available and everything to try to make make clear that this is really the case of what happened here. So that's what the open sources are doing. The um, government is basically doing something else like medical examiners that go on the scene and say, oh, they're dead. And like, you know, Eric Gardner, how they were saying he was selling like right. bootleg or something. And then they said, no, he had a heart attack. And it's like, y'all all talk with him on camera. So that, like, that's, that's a literal example of how they, you know, misreport. The open sources would be like, no, Eric Gardner was basically attacked and tackled by police officers, and that led to his death. Okay, um, let me let uh, let me let Ida go, and then Mud, can you go after Ida? 
Yeah, okay. Oh. Yeah, I just, um, wow, I'm seeing that graph. Whoa. Oh, took the, took the air out of me. Um, I mean, I, I must admit, I saw this title, you know, while scrolling, while doom scrolling, uh, I saw the title and I was like, well, I'm not surprised. I always assumed that was the case. I never assumed otherwise, uh, but I didn't read it. Um, but now that, you know, we read it, uh, you know, I, I see Gabriel is, <laughs> uh, you know, rightfully outraged and NPR, um, I feel NPR is one of the most pernicious news sources because it caters to these, you know, white color professionals um, and they still think it's national public radio, but it's become, you know, the funding of NPR has dramatically changed over the decades and now it's all, you know, deep, deep pockets. Uh, what is it called? Dark money, um, corporate interests, and they will always use this. You know, this is one of their tactics. You know, okay, let's tell them a little bit of truth, and then let's let's muddy the waters. Sorry, mud. <laughs> no, no offense intended there, but they they muddy the waters uh, um, by throwing in this sort of relevant but really irrelevant comparison um that's that's they just love doing that and it's really important that people be educated so they can see through this shit and with our education system i don't see that happening so there we are media are our one of our biggest enemies and npr is on top of that list for me for this precise reason mud you're up sir and anybody who'd like to go after mud just go ahead and raise your hand We'll just go from there. Yeah, um, I think I, I had my, my biggest issue was like, all right, so it sounds like this this next fellow is trying to discredit the study. And like he, it, it would be one thing if he pointed out that, you know, there was like some some grand mistake being made by the the, the research, but saying that it's including domestic violence murders by police, it seems like the issue that he's making here is that we have to only look at this in terms of, um, I guess, murders that happened on duty versus off duty with the, with the cops. And I kind of, I get that to a certain degree, but at the same time, it's like, that really doesn't make much of a difference to me in, in the grand scheme of things. Like, I think that uh, maybe all of this, all of this should be collected and like, whether they're on duty or off duty, they should be held accountable to a uh, higher level, of, I guess, uh, standards than the average citizen. Like they shouldn't be able to just murder people and like, I don't know, hide <laughs> what happened. Um, but even in the, even if he's saying the methodology is incorrect, I doubt that that is a high percentage of those cases anyways. So still the number is way off. I mean, but I'll leave it there. All righty then, let's go ahead and go to band two, please. 
Um, Tobacco, what Mud was saying, I also agree. Because, like, to me, it seemed like a lot of the, towards the end of the um, article, is, like, said only to cast doubt and not to, like, give either a proper critique or to give you, like, a developing perspective of the researchers and what they're doing. Um, nah, nah, we gonna finish yeah, reading. We're going to finish reading. Wait till we get to that part so people have it fresh right. in their mind for the analysis. Because it's really, gotcha. you know, it helps people, you know, because we want to we want to really lead people along. So, because if you say something right. that's really good for them, I want them to be able to just rewind right back, right before that. Because, you know, gotcha. we can be a little, I'm a little. Right, I ain't going to say that. Well, I'm going to say this one then. Um, I'm here all right, the back of what Mutt was saying, um, yeah, when you're talking about cops off of, like, off the clock and whatnot, like, we can easily think about the Amber Guyver situation where, like, she was literally off. I'm pretty sure she was off the clock when it happened. Like, it wasn't like she was working at the time. So when people talk about things that would be considered, like, you know, like, in a, not like domestic violence or things that would be considered a traditional police killing, we also have to take that in consideration. So, like, you know, I agree. Like, we should look into even things that are, you know, even domestic violence, because it could be other black women or even black men that is being weaponized against the police state when these people are home or, you know, carrying on about their lives. That's it. Sorry, give me one second. Um, Scorpio, can you flesh out a little bit more of what you're saying in the um, in the chat? Because I just want to make sure that um, it's clear. So we're not, you understand what I'm saying? So the study basically examines examines all the sources like there's more open sources than three but what they do is they excluded some of them because they don't fit certain criteria so the whole point of the study is just to show like uh how other sources collect data and how they try to how they try to like uh preserve like what actually happened because as you see from the article saying that a lot went unreported it's because what these open sources are doing is that they're collecting information and they're making people know that this happened while the government isn't showing that. So like the study basically examines how all the sources collect information, what they might have missed out, um, what, what got left out due to certain circumstances. So the person in the article is like bringing up a complaint that doesn't seem to make sense to me because the study literally examines all the open sources anyway. And they're not, and they're trying to basically point out that they, they looked at the stories and see what details were missed, see how they reported stuff, see their own classifications. So it's like every source might have a different methodology. They're not all the same. So I, I, they're not making clear about what are you talking about? Um, what open source are you talking about anyway? There's a lot of questions. Alrighty, I'm gonna go to Danette. Thank you so much for that, Scorpio. The thing that caught my eye um, about the section where he talks about his concerns um, with counting domestic violence of off-duty officers um, and counting them as police killings is that something that is not addressed and swept under the rug is the violent culture of police in general. They're not just terrorizing the citizenry, they're terrorizing their families. And it's a culture, they sweep the violence of the officers under the rug. They, um, they whether it's, you know, oh, we gotta tune somebody up because they smarted off or they talked back. I spoke 
in um, one of our other meetings about watching cop watcher videos. And the police get really ticked off when the citizens cuss at them, when the citizens are challenging them, asking for their badge numbers and their names, and they show their tail. They don't, they're, they're not interested in um, really protecting and serving. What they're doing, they're, they're like, and this is gonna, this, it just reminds me of the difference between um, in the movie Transformers, where you have the Autobots that are like out to really save humanity and you have the Decepticons, which are out to destroy humanity. And what the police do is they're like the Decepticons. They are, they lie, they cheat, they steal. They have gangs, they have, you know, they run guns, they, they steal drugs, they run drugs, they traffic, do sex trafficking, they do rendition. Like there's all these things that they do and nobody is talking about the culture of violence. And so even if they're, if they're in, if they exclude domestic violence, like it's not violence, then, you know, they're just not being honest about the culture that, that um, police, it was born out of violence, right? Like they were slave catchers. They were there to, um, you know, kill black people because they escaped and wanted freedom oh my gosh how dare we and it's just something that has continued for hundreds of years and so there's a culture there that's being ignored and 17,000 people being disappeared that that's atrocious that that's like when America freaks out about a government wiping out you know like ethnic cleansing in another country and and the government our government wants to go and start a war with with that country but it's completely okay for ethnic cleansing to be happening here that's all i got oh thank you for that Danette. we're gonna go ahead and move on to gabriel and then josiah will be after thank every thank you guys for waiting i really appreciate all of this analysis um and i think in a way, I'm just going to restate what Mantu and Danette have ju just said, but I, I want to place slightly different emphasis on it. When the police are so-called off-duty, which is part of this, you know, how they're framing this, the police are continuing to serve their purposes as agents of the state. There's no such thing as being off-duty as a police officer because there's no such thing as being off-duty in war, and they don't stop assaulting people and they don't stop having the mentality. One of the problems we have for our uh, men and women in service when they come home is just adjusting. Their brains have been permanently at war the whole time they were away. It's not like that just you flip a switch off. You have to slowly go through a process. It never ever ends for cops. And so they're agents of the state and that's a permanent condition. So to try to act like, oh, this guy, this wasn't an, a police action. This was him shooting somebody while he was off duty and drunk does not actually make any sense. Um, the other thing I, I, I wanted to um, ask you, Sam, is do you mind if, if we just take a quick look at Justin Nix? If I just do a quick screen share? I think it's um, maybe, I mean, we could do it later if you want. This isn't to be, look, I'm not that guy. I, I actually prefer the data and the analysis before this but this matters so <laughs> y'all can 
right? <laughs> this is our expert who thinks it's cool how they figured out that 17,000 people were murdered and then the murders were misclassified. I'm sure it is cool in Nebraska because it's probably boring there. Or I, I don't know what his motivations are, but I just feel like um, it's important that you know, what we're talking about in this and who we're talking about is a, an extremely young um, a string, extremely young man in in the Midwest who is super Caucasian, like even whiter <laughs> than And that's all I got. Killmonger. Yeah, next up, that. Killmonger. I'm gonna run downstairs and get some water. So if I'm not back in time, just go to, uh, move on to Scorpio and just keep raising your hands, and we'll just keep going down the line. I got you. Well, I'll keep it brief. Um. I was just going to say, like, I actually want to reiterate something Gabe said. It's um, cops are cops. Off-duty cops are still cops. Don't believe me? Shoot one. Right. Like, like off-duty cops are still treated with all the authority. They still have all the authority that they have with, when they're in yeah. uniform. They can still do everything that they, that they did as long as they have their gun on them. Yeah. So this yeah. whole concept of, well, they were off-duty when they shot the person. You were still a cop. And right. you were still using that authority as a police officer because your wife knows that you're a cop and that you can get away with certain things if you choose to. We know about how y'all terrorize your families. We know. Right. And as far as the um, race war thing, like, like, I don't believe you're far off with that. I was just asking on Twitter the other day about that audio from those North Carolina cops who were um, plotting a race war. They got caught on their uh, cams sitting in, in, in their... Uh, in their patrol car, casually plotting race war. They said they're gonna set us back, those inwards back a few generations. So yeah, there's a whole culture casually plotting race war. They said they're gonna set us back, those inwards back a few generations. So yeah, there's a whole culture in, amongst police officers that that is still very much anti-black. And, and white supremacists have been allowed to roam free in this country for so long that they just join into these institutions and they're able to act with impunity. Like, this has right. to stop. Oh, my turn? My yeah, we'll go. So, all right. So, I think it's, it's very trivial and doesn't matter that much because I'll look at them and say, okay, so you care about that. So if an open source, if an independent organization wants to count that, they can just count that as its own category. Like, who cares? Like, uh, and as as Isaiah said, like, you know, off the cops are still cops, shoot one. Like, because there's so many videos on YouTube right now. You can search up one officer stopping their boss, stopping their chief that's off duty because they did a traffic violation. And they was laughing and whatnot. And they he was like, oh, thank you, boss. And he was like, oh, no, I'm sorry, do your job. And he didn't do none to the office like this. And he knew it. So he knew him. He didn't do all that extra stuff. Like, there's a literal um, judge. Scorpio, that used their Scorpio before you go further, can I just jump in? Not only are when you're not on duty um, as a cop, you're still a cop. My mother used to work in the police station. She retired. Not only is it that, as a person who is cop adjacent, as a child of a cop adjacent person, 
you have privilege as well. I used to get pulled over driving to school in high school by this cop named Sergio all the time. And he would fuss at me and tell me he was gonna call my mother. So go ahead, I'm sorry. I just had to throw that out there. It's not just cops, it's the family yep. too. Cause, um, Cause when there was a judge, the judge got stopped by this officer and the judge was like, he came out the car. He's like, do you know who I am? Do you not know who I am? And the officer was like, what? And then the officer came back, um, searched him up. And then he went back to the car and was like, have a good day, judge. And he's like, yeah, you bet. <laughs> and he left. I was, I was like, I never seen a cop get like treated like that on camera. Like anyone who is in the state, seemingly in the system, government has power, doesn't, doesn't have to deal with any of that. Like doesn't have to deal with that at all. Like it's literally on camera, it's everywhere in many places and whatnot. The only time in which it doesn't seem to apply is like when you're black and also when you're uh, not 100% black, but like when you're black and you're trying to go against it and they start trying to plot against you and whatnot, depending on where you are. That there's some factors that affect this, but like seeing for many white people when they have that power, it just goes their way all the time, whether they're on duty or off duty. Alrighty, Danette. And after Danette, we'll let Patricia go because I know I see that she's trying to get her hand up over there. <laughs> um, yeah, I was just going to point out that videos that um, that I've seen on YouTube recently are police officers with a history of DUI, and they and they you know kill people and end up with the slap on the wrist. You know, like they're. I watched this one video where this guy um, killed two people, ran, who was going the wrong way on the highway and um, ran into a father and a son. Both of them were killed instantly. And he was released to his parents. He was a young, like 20 something cop and had a history of DUI. So their authority, their, not even their authority, their, their hubris, their ability to literally get away with hurting and maiming people isn't just a thing that happens on duty. It is something that is within the culture of how they're trained so that they can push people around and get away with it in uniform or out of uniform. And what I find problematic about this article is that there's not more outrage about the fact that police can be violent, whether it's disappearing 17,000 people from gunshot wounds and murder, or whether they beat their wives and their children, like they're terrorists. And it, it, what they're doing is terrorizing people, you know, and it's not okay. Like it shouldn't be okay that that's what they're doing. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's it. All right, go ahead. Patricia, you're up next, right? Yes, I wanted to say, like 20 years ago, I did um, domestic violence hotline for a couple of years, and the training was excellent, <laughs> which helps. Um, but, you know, historically, the police have not been helpful with domestic violence. They kind of support the uh, domestic abuser. If it's, I mean, yes, we, men get abused, too. Um, but they haven't been very supportive with either because you know they're supporting the current power structure and also if you if a man's being abused 
He's like, what's the matter with you? You can't take care of your business. It's, you know, so it's improved. Yeah, it's literally a joke. They'll literally make a joke out of it. Mm-hmm. It is a joke. I mean, not a joke. Yeah. Um, so it's all about the privilege of taking it, you know, your entitlement to that it's okay to abuse someone else across their boundaries and all that. It's just all related to violence and patriarchy. With some nuances. As I experienced people calling, you know, they had been threatened. Can you hear me? Okay. They, you know, like they're, people pull out a weapon, threaten their family, abuse the dog to scare the family to get them to do what they want. You know, so like it's a control thing. You know? So those people shouldn't have guns. I tried to put, you know, you talk about gun control. Okay, this is getting on a different topic, but maybe not really. We talk about gun control. People who threaten their families with weapons shouldn't have guns. I mean, is that not, how is that not hard to understand? How is that hard to understand? So, so Patricia, I have a question for you. What happens when the person who threatens their family with the gun is a cop? The people right. who used to live next door to my mother, he pulled a gun on his wife and his two kids. She ended up leaving him years later. But yeah. Yep. And That's just real. And he was a drunk and he was abusive. Yeah. And drinking doesn't cause domestic violence, but it can amplify the, the wildness in there. You know. Mm-hmm uncorked and add violence to it but it doesn't really cause the violence it's the assumptions within that person that they have the right to do these things no he was just a mean person but he was a real mean drunk oh boy <laughs> i'd rather have somebody kind of sobbing <laughs> no i'm sorry That's... you can take it like a kitty cat drunk over a mean uh, like I said, I, I, yeah, I definitely take a kitty cat drunk over. I like a ha- no, I like a happy drunk actually. Happy drunk, there you go. I like a happy drunk over a yeah, because mean drunks are something else. But all right, um, where did I want to go with this? I had something I wanted to say, but I kind of got lost in it. So I'm gonna let Gabriel go and then Danette, and then I want to slide back to the act, the rest of the article, because there's other stuff we need to bring up. I know I had an article I wanted to bring up from Ferguson from Ferguson, but Gabriel was talking about the kids knowing what's going on out there and how crazy it is. And I do vaguely remember there being a report where they were actually came out where they were talking about where they had kidnapped people like the police and the black sites. But I wanna talk about, I wanna finish this up and then I wanna move to the next thing. I wanna make sure we're not bouncing around too much so it's hard for people to follow. So let's, um, you, so Gabriel, then Danette, and then we're gonna go back to the article. So for this section, I want to I want to bring this back to um, I want to bring this to reparations and I want to bring this to John Brown's leftism. So he I mean, to me, this is we've already started to sort of touch on how the police are, um, you know, even servants of the state when they're not at work. But the point, the trajectory of the life of a cop is intentionally designed to produce maximum violence for the state. The state needs the violence. So they start like a regular cop and they, you know, through several different paths, end up more and more violent. When they're out of control, when you can't hide them anymore, they go to the gang unit. 
And the gang unit goes to predominantly black neighborhoods. They'll go other places too, but we need to be very clear about what we're talking about because it's conversations about the police can sometimes get to, the police are so mean to everybody. Why aren't they nice to everybody? Mm -mm. There's that problem too, because when you have power, you can abuse it or whatever. What we're talking about, and Danette already uh, referenced this earlier, is uh, slave catchers. Sam, you, you're mute again, just so you know. I think you just said so. Okay, sorry. Um, refer, uh, referred this to earlier that the, this is these are slave patrols, and that has not changed. The dynamic, the reality of the dynamic we're talking about is a culture and a country and an economy and management of the violence of the state that is about white people oppressing black people. It is necessary. So the point of the violence, part of the point of the violence is specific to black folks. And this is where John Brown leftism is different from other leftists because they'll talk about how the purposes of a bottom caste is to economically exploit people. So you have surplus um, workers. Well, well we're, we frame in America, that's actually not the, the you've got to start with how people are actually being treated. You need, you need to have people to abuse. It's, it's like the violence is the necessary foundation. The corrupt foundation of this country is the subjugation and abuse specifically of black folks. You can't make this a broad or vague problem. And just like reparations, people will say, well, we have to reform the police and what are we gonna make sure that the, so like to ensure the police treat everybody better. I want the police to treat everybody better, but I will be very honest and say, I don't care about that until you solve the problem of police murdering and disappearing black people first. And it's not about, you know, I love everybody. But if you don't solve this problem first, you're not solving this problem. And we keep telling people this over and over again. And you've got to start with reparative justice, because the truth is we don't get it. We don't we don't solve, we don't understand how this country is organized. So you have to start with the economic dimension, because I promise you, if we give back the money that we've stolen from centuries of labor and murder and exploitation from black folks, and now that part of our culture, that 20 to 25% of our population, which is, I think, what the real number is, has the wealth to start to really have the influence. We're not going to have these problems, not at the scale we have it. Now try to pull over a black person and say, I'm putting you in jail for no reason. That, now that's the judge, because that's somebody who has assets and influence and wealth on the level that white people do. And now, this, now we've got a whole different situation. So that's, um, I just wanted to kind of bring that around for this for this first section. Thank you so much. All right, so I want Danette to go. And after that, Scorpio, I see you raised your hand and I'm glad because I was actually gonna ask you to speak to what you were talking about in the chat. So after that, please do that. And then anything you wanna speak about on top of that, please feel free to. And then we'll move back to the article. So Ida posted in the chat about professional standards um, for police officers. They've never had professional standards. Their professional standard is to beat black people. Like that's the reason that they exist is to control, to control black men, which then gets our gets the women and the children in line. So that we are as a as a collective, we are terrified of our interactions with police. And I, you know, I live, I was, I sent pictures to Sam yesterday of my, the yard work, the, the landscaping that my husband has done in our, in our front yard. I live in a peaceful, quiet neighborhood, you know, like literally, uh, 
less than a half a mile from the entrance of a military base in a military town. The police do not drive through my neighborhood, but my husband and my son specifically, when my son leaves the house, I am on pins and needles until he returns home because he can encounter police. He lives, he works an hour from um, our house and he at any time in his hour journey can encounter police. And so my, my, um, my point in saying all of this is that this, what this article really shows is that police are out of control more than even I imagined. And it's just, it's, it's a horrible thing that 17,000 people have been harmed by police and this article touches on it and yet it's not a major news outlet story like it, it's ridiculous that we have the live streamed murder of George Floyd this you know in last year and then we have this article come out and people have gone back to sleep Joe Biden's in office everybody you know white people can go back to brunch and go back to some semblance of normalcy in their lives while black people are still, you know, at risk. We're still, you know, under the boot of the authoritarian regime. That's all I've got. Alrighty then, go ahead, Scorpio, give it to us. So, when it came to, when everyone is reacting to uh, what the person is saying about the sources using off-duty cops, one reason that I feel like this person is saying this is because the article suggests one of the solutions is um, using these sources, like not necessarily using these specific sources, but imagine you can, someone can make their own open source to collect this information because we can't trust the government to be honest about it because it points out that the people committing the violence are also in charge of reporting the deaths and reporting the violence, which they're not gonna do honestly because it seems to some medical examiners and physicians that they're being pressured to change and not include the cases that led to the death of the person that they're basically making the death certificate for. Like, this is something that is seemingly, uh, as you're saying, cast in doubt, that it's like they're saying, well, we should not really trust these open source. I'm like, they could have said, well, these open sources uh, could probably be more organized, but they're doing a good job in trying to, you know, get cracked down on basically the lack of reporting the discrepancies and reporting of police violence because they, they don't just calculate the uh, the shooting, they calculate nonviolence, like basically um, tasers and pepper sprays and everything. So they're going deep, they're going deep. And um, so, the fact that like the article does not suggest that we should be using these more to try to you know keep you know to, to preserve the facts of what happened in certain cases, it just shows that they're kind of being like you know low key oppositional. Because like they suggest like oh you know people have made reforms and trying to you know police cams and everything. One another thing that they don't even seem to include is the fact that like the medical um, examiners are pressured like they're they are pressured. To make a because you know it's not just physicians it can also be medical um people that are on the scene that are you know saying the cause of death because like you can also do that on like when you're on the scene so one thing i also understood is maybe there should be a person that's not associated with the police or someone that's on the scene that can do it without the influence of the police and the people like that are in power so that we can you know have someone that 
is not from them trying to calculate and, and trying to, you know, give us more accurate information because the police keep showing that they're not trustworthy. They're not trustworthy. They're trying to, you know, uh, hide information. They're trying to misrepresent what's going on because like it's, they're, they're put in the text. When they write down what happened, they put, they don't include the police. That's why, that's why you're seeing like when people look it up, they can't find nothing. So I think that's the reason why the person in the uh, article is saying, oh, you know, they also calculate off duty. Like that's such a really trivial thing when you're really looking at what the study is trying to tell you. Including the fact that the study also examines other open sources and examine these open sources and put them side by side. There's a whole table on that too, where they compare like which one is missing some information. Why are they missing some information? Because the open source is also misinformation. But like, they're, but they're trying to be nuanced about it. And this person article isn't given that, isn't isn't really doing it justice. So there's a lot to it. Uh, uh, Sister asked police shoot, police killings. Uh, he has documented cases where the databases count, for example, domestic violence by off-duty officers as police killings, right? <clears throat> so I'm not saying that we don't need to track that in these sorts of databases, but I'm just saying that all police killings are not created equally, he says. I think there's definitely issues around exactly the criteria used. He says the IHME's Murray, um, says the IHME's Murray, I see, okay. I think that's an important question given that we're looking at multiple sources, but I don't think that it's really influencing the time trend we're seeing. In other words, the numbers are going up regardless. The study shows the death rate in these encounters dropping in the 1980s then generally rising again since about 2000. The article also highlights the disparity in the mortality rate from African-Americans, which it says is three, three and a half times higher than that of whites. The article suggests that the disparity is caused by systemic racism and policing, but it doesn't specify how that happens. Specifically, it doesn't address whether police are more likely to use lethal force against African-Americans or whether non-policing factors lead African-Americans to have more encounters with police. Murray says this analysis doesn't answer that. I don't think from a scientific point of view, we have enough information here to parse out how much of this is, you know, basic differences in where people live, what sort of disadvantage they have versus the actual specific actions of the police, he says. But as a public health ex expert, Murray says that the more we know about these deaths, the easier it is to know, the easier it will be to find policy solutions. It's the old saw, you manage what you measure. And so we've got to do a better job of tracking and what's actually happening, he says. Uh, there's a lot in the study. There's like a lot of, like there is the global something disease type thing. There's a lot that they're using over here. So the way that he just kind of like trivializes it and whether or not it's kind of disrespectful to what the study is trying to do, like it's an extensive study. It's a very extensive study. Like I shared a, a figure that basically shows them comparing like the three open sources they use. So they're not acting like they're all the same. So it's just really crazy how they don't even, you know, compare all the three open sources and see which one like we can, you know, what uh, what model can we use to have more accurate reporting? Like, they're not talking about that. Like, there's a lot that this person is talking about. Not, not even the state, like they even include states of uh, mortality rate of every race, like not Hispanic black people, not Hispanic white people, you know, uh, indigenous people, like they got all that too in there. And this person just focused on something like that. Like, like you said, the outreach is not enough. Cause this, like, when you look at the, um, when it comes to non-Hispanic black people, it's, it's atrocious. We're always in the red. 
we're always in the red. Like when you look at it, we're always. All right, Danette, I see your hand up. The thing that set me off even more with this article is where he says the article suggests this, this, the disparity is caused by systemic racism in policing, but it doesn't specify how that happens. He's new to this conversation. We know how it happens. Like this is not a new conversation, it's new for him. So he's writing this article from a place where it's virgin territory for him. He doesn't, doesn't understand, understand how systemic racism in policing has existed since slave catchers were running around catching slaves that wanted freedom. Um, and he says that it doesn't address, specifically, it doesn't address whether police are more likely to use lethal force against African-Americans or whether non-policing factors lead African-Americans to have more encounters with police, putting the blame on African-Americans. And so the, the issue for me is that we know that they use, they use more lethal force with African-Americans. When you got a white man on YouTube, high on meth, trying to run over a cop, and the cop is running in the yard, running around in circles, trying to escape a, a Ford F-150, and when the, the meth head crashes, and they pull him out of the truck, he's still alive. That's how we know that there is a disparity and there is systemic racism in policing. When a black man using a counterfeit $20 bill ends up dead, but the white people who were looking to hang Nancy Pelosi and, and um, uh, Trump's vice president, its name is escaping me right now. What's the dude's name? Somebody tell me. Pence. Yes. Pence, thank you. When, when they're looking, literally looking to hang the leaders of our government and these people are getting slaps on the wrist, but black people, when they encounter law enforcement- For treason, for treason. do not get that twisted, for treason. For treason, yes, yes. For treason, sedition, attempted murder, like they were literally there looking for them. It was attempted murder. And they're just, you know, oh, community service, you know, ankle monitor. Um, it's, it, yes, there is systemic racism. And so it's not a question and people need to stop acting like it's a new question. They need to stop acting like this isn't a thing that has existed since the founding of this country. We need, we need to call this out because that part to me, it, it, it um, invalidates whatever he's saying. Like, I, I, I'm not interested in what Nick or whatever this guy's name is. I'm not interested in what he has to say because he's coming from a place of oblivion and ignorance. He has no idea what he's talking about. I don't think it's ignorance. I think it's obfuscation. I think that he knows and he's just trying to downplay the reality. I mean, that's, that's the way I see it, but you know, maybe I'm- Well, that's a possibility. That's <laughs> I mean, that's the way I see it. Again, isn't that just how white supremacy works? Like, all you have to do is just downplay the extreme, right? It's like, sorry, it's like everything that we exactly. see. If you watch our show, when Josiah's talking about, you're just trying to de-radicalize our white people, right? So whereas the people on this, every person on this panel felt some level of outrage seeing, oh, sorry, let me turn my camera on, y'all. So, so everybody on this panel felt some level of outrage, like listening to this article, right? And you're supposed to, but 
he for other people he's making it be like oh this is kind of interesting he's downplaying it right so if if you don't catch it you don't understand and I feel like a lot of things it's the it's the subtle ways that they program you right like if I come straight out and be like I want you to believe this and do this you're like oh whoa whoa but if I'm just subtle and being slightly dismissive of things then you just get used to dismissing black people because everybody does it it's the norm it's it's subtle it's very subtle all right um go ahead gabriel just very quickly um because i know you want to wrap this up this is and and this is a little bit speaking to what you and danette were just saying there is no question that there is not a black person with any power at npr when you listen to or read this like it tells you for a fact there's not another journalist there who's black who saw this thing the copy didn't show up anywhere for somebody from the, you know, just from an, a black American did not see this before it got published or else they would have been like, you need to do a little rewriting here or call this person because that's the other glaring thing. It's like, okay, so, so you guys all are scratching your heads like we don't understand systemic black racism. Is there nobody that can explain systemic racism to you? You know that there is, you know, those, those phone numbers are in the, in the office or, you know, whatever in your email, if everyone's remote. And that's why people have to look at stuff like this. You got to look at reset race. You got to look at John Brown leftists because you really can't trust the media that you hear and read that's mainstream to give you correct information. And so, you know, even your, you know, for white people, white people, you have friends who listen to NPR and they are pretty sure they're progressive because of it. Challenge them to watch us. You have a white friend bring up this story and be like, what did you think about the coverage? And if they're like, it was all right, or I don't know, I didn't think about it. Be like, I'm going to tell you when this episode comes up and I want you to watch this instead. And just let them know, see the difference. Like Sam was saying, it's like, look, NPR even sounds like hypnosis. Like you listen to that and it's like, do, 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 la, 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 everything's fine the voices, the music, everything. It's like 17,000 people were murdered, plus a new recipe for your summer barbecue. Like it's literally, they, they're trying to make you feel numb. Challenge your uh, white friends to watch Reset Race, John Brown Leftist, because this is the information people need. You know, perfect time to say that, right? So come on, like, comment, share, subscribe, like send this out to your friends. Especially, I feel like this show is less raunchy. I feel like, the, but I feel like this is more, I feel like we got a lot of gut punch over here though. It's like, wow. But you know, it's less cursing and raunchiness. So it's good for some of y'all. Cause I know some of y'all be like, oh my God. I can curse if you want me to. I mean, I probably- you know what? I think I'm pretty good in mixed up. But they be like, oh my God, why Sam curse so much? Because I can't, I'm angry. I'm an angry Negro. If Talia can be an angry Jewish woman, I can be an angry Negro. She said it in that, uh, in that, uh, was it the uh, that bad faith fucking thing when she was having a, when she was fucking, oh, poor thing. Yeah. So bad for yep. her. I couldn't, I don't think me and Brie can talk. I think Mud got to go on Brie's show. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, Mud doesn't. Mug can't do it. No, no, no. You know who's got to go. All hell kill Kingmonger. All hell kill King. Ah, ah. That show, that would be quite the interview. Yeah, all hell King Killmonger. That's who got to go. Yep. 
he got the perfect you didn't say why are you quiet you know that's you 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 would get her clean together church night oh for sure i i would love to have my just five minutes with uh brie brie because like so for those of y'all who be like why don't y'all go on brie's show she can talk to killmonger i would love to i've been watching you for so long back when you were hanging out with michael brooks Rest in peace, I guess. Yes, rest in peace. All right, um, Gabriel, was your hand up from before? Or is this new? Yeah, that's old. Okay, cool. Sorry. Okay. So, who wants to, so, oh, oh, sorry. Okay. Um, Alrighty then, so let's move on to the next article. So we're going to go to the Chicago Black site thing, and then we're going to go to Ferguson and tie all of this. But Gabe already tied his reparations, but I'm gonna bring, but we're gonna do it again. Like we got time. So where are we at too? We're at okay, so we've been at okay, so actually let's pause here. Any the disappeared Chicago police detained Americans at abuse-laden black site. The Chicago Police Department operates an off-the-books interrogation compound, rendering Americans unable to be found by family or attorneys while locked inside what lawyers say is the domestic equivalent of a CIA black site. The facility, a nondescript warehouse on Chicago's west side known as Homan Square, has long been the scene of secretive work by special police units. Interviews with local attorneys and one protester who spent the better part of a day shackled in Homan Square described operations that deny access to basic constitutional rights. Alleged police practices at Homan Square, according to those familiar with the facility who spoke out to the Guardian, after its investigation into Chicago police abuse include keeping arrestees out of official booking databases, beating by police resulting in head wounds, shackling for prolonged periods, denying attorneys access to the secure facility, holding people without legal counsel for between people as young as 15. At least one man was found unresponsive in Holman Square interview room and later pronounced dead. Brian Jacob Church, a protester known as one of the NATO questioned at Holman Square in 2012 following a police raid. Officers restrained Church for the better part of a day, denying him access to an attorney before sending him to a nearby police station to be booked and charged. Holman Square is definitely an unusual place, Church told The Guardian on Friday. It brings to mind the interrogation facilities they use in the Middle East. The CIA calls them black sites. It's a domestic black site. When you go in, no one knows what's happened to you. The secret of warehouse is the latest example of Chicago police practices war on terrorism. While those abuses impacted people overseas, Home and Square said to house military-style vehicles, interrogation cells, and even a cage, transfers on Americans most often poor, black, and brown. Unlike a precinct, no one taken to Homan Square is said to be booked. Witnesses, suspects, or other Chicagoans who end up inside do not appear to have a public searchable record entered into a database indicating where they are, as happens when someone is booked at a precinct. Lawyers insist no way of finding their whereabouts. Those lawyers who have attempted to gain access to Homan Square are most often turned away, even as their clients remain in custody inside. It's an open secret of attorneys that regularly make police station visits. This place, if you can't find a client in the system, odds are they're there. 
said Chicago lawyer Julia Bartmas. Chicago civil rights attorney Flint Taylor's Homeland Square represented a routinization of notorious practice in local violates the Fifth and Sixth Amendments of the Constitution. This Homeland Square revelation seems to me to be an institutionalization of the practices that date back more than 40 years, Taylor said, of violating a suspect or witness's right to a lawyer and not to be physically or otherwise coerced into giving a statement. Um, I'll just start from the quote, uh, this home and square. This home and square revelation seems to me to be the inst an institutionalization of the practice that dates back more than 40 years, Taylor said, of violating a suspect or a witness's rights to a lawyer and not to be physically or otherwise coerced into giving a statement. Much remains hidden about home and square. The Chicago Police Department did not respond to the Guardian's questions about the facility, but after the Guardian published this story, the department provided a statement insisting, without specifics, that there is nothing untoward taking place at what is called the sensitive location, home to undercover units. CPD, Chicago Police Department, abides by all laws, rules, and guidelines pertaining to any interviews of suspects or witnesses at Home and Square or any other CPD facility. If lawyers have a client home in any other facility, they are allowed to speak to and visit them. It also houses CPD's evidence recovered property section where the CPD, Chicago Police Department, abides by all laws, rules, and guidelines pertaining to any interviews of suspects or witnesses at Home and Square or any other CPD facility. If lawyers have a client home in any other facility, they are allowed to speak to and visit them. It also houses CPD's evidence recovered property section where the public is able to claim inventoried property, the statement says, something numerous attorneys and one home and square arrestee have denied. There are always records of anyone who is arrested by CPD and this is not any different at home and square. It continued. The Chicago police statement did not address how long into an arrest or detention those records are generated or their availability to the public a department spokesman did not respond to a detailed request for clarification. I would like to pause here, if that's okay. Oh, no, that's perfect. Please do, I'm gonna, oop, go ahead. Okay. Um, okay, so I'm in Chicago. This is, this is um, no one's surprised if I say this is all not true, the Chicago police response and that everything that's being described in Holman Square, I know to be true. I mean, we know if, if you're in the community, you know people who have been in Holman Square and other places as well. But the point that I wanted to make, which is maybe minor to some people, but I think extremely important, is the Guardian is trying to connect this to wars overseas in, in the context of the war on terror. And that's as far, I mean, I appreciate that they're doing that. That's just the tip of the iceberg, like we were talking about before, like the slave patrols, this goes back, there's no difference between domestic war and international war in America. And so we also know John Burge, many people who watch this show will know who John Burge is, just an absolutely brutal criminal in the Chicago Police Department who had a squad under him who routinely tortured people and all of the techniques they used were techniques that he perfected while he was in Vietnam. And that's not an unusual story. The connections between, I mean, it was literally, there were things that he would do. 
he had a way that he would uh, electrocute people. And I'm not going to go into it. The details are so gory that we don't need to freak people out. But he had a way he would electrocute people that was essentially recreating a device that was, was really kind of uh, crude in Vietnam, but it was all he could find material for. So in America, he actually could have just gone to Home Depot and got everything he needed in a brand new torture device. I'm but what he had learned to do, further. he I'm learned to do with a little here, a little there. And it was in a way actually harder for him to get the right kind of battery and the right. This yeah. is, it never ends, it back and forth. And I'll say it again. I mean, yeah, we know what home in is the West Side. This is, these are black neighborhoods. When, when King was murdered, the West Side of Chicago among you know, people riding all over the country was unique in its intensity. America has waged war on the west side of Chicago at the highest levels for decades. This is a story about black people being captured and disappeared and being presented as like, you know, regular folks. And in fact, if I had to guess the NATO three, two out of three of them at least are white people. I would just guess because they're protesting NATO which is a different kind of sort. But I also understand because people of privilege are more comfortable talking about their experiences with the police because they still have that illusion that the police have to follow rules. And, and so I'm guessing that that's, this NATO three guy is probably someone who looks, you know, a little like me. Um, but this is actually, the story here is, is a story about how we take the, the methods of war internationally and bring it back domestically and wage our race war against black folks. And then there's also collateral damage. Raised to believe, and by now they helplessly believe, that no matter how terrible their lives may be, and their lives have been quite terrible, and no matter how far they fall, no matter what disaster overtakes them, they have one enormous knowledge and consolation, which is like a heavenly revelation. At least they are not black. Now, I suggest that of all the terrible things that can happen to a human being, that is one of the worst. I suggest that what has happened to white Southerners is in some ways, after all, much worse than what has happened to, white, to, to Negroes there. Because Sheriff Clark in Selma, Alabama, cannot be considered, you know, no one is, can be dismissed as a total monster. I'm sure he loves his wife, his children. I'm sure that, you know, he likes to get drunk. You know, he's, after all, one's got to assume, and he is visibly a man like me. But he doesn't know what drives him to use the club, to menace with the gun, and to use the cattle prod. Something awful must have happened to a human being to be able to put a cattle prod against a woman's breast, for example. What happens to the woman is ghastly. What happens to the man who does it is in some ways much, much worse. This is being done, after all, not a hundred years ago, but in 1965, in a country which is blessed with what we call prosperity, a word you won't examine too closely, with a certain kind of social coherence which calls itself a civilized nation and which espouses 
the notion of the freedom of the world. And it is perfectly true from the point of view now simply of an American Negro. Any American Negro watching this, no matter where he is, from the vantage point of Harlem, which is another terrible place, has to say to himself, in spite of what the government says, the government says we can't do anything about it. But if those are white people being murdered in Mississippi work farms, being carried off to jail, those are white children running up and down the streets, the government would find some way of doing something about it. We have a civil rights bill now. We had an amendment, the 15th Amendment, nearly 100 years ago. I hate to sound again like an Old Testament prophet, but if the amendment was not honored then, I don't have any reason for believing the civil rights bill will be honored now. Okay. Well, I'm not going to be long. I just think that it's interesting in these conversations um, because it seems that, it seems to me that the torture of American citizens is not really a concern when it's when it's black people, but when you tie it to like what's happening in other countries, there seems to be a, a level of sympathy that the American public will, will give to those causes. And I, I know I don't want to really get into like the comparison too heavy. It's just that we, we're supposed to have a certain amount of rights in this country. And the fact that our rights are being violated on a daily basis just gets swept under the rug. And there, there, there's just no compassion in the general public to actually, or, or concern really, to, to investigate this thoroughly and to change it. It just seems to be like um, we accept some symbolic gesture and then once we get a little bit of fatigue, um, we move on to the next thing. I'll leave it there. Ooh, that's really good. Um, just for future, um, I think one of these days, um, one of these uh, Sundays, we're going to have to have a watch party of, um, sorry, everybody, everybody makes sure you're muted. Um, of, um, I want to do a watch party of post-traumatic slave syndrome, one of uh, the, um, the lecture, one of the lectures, and we might have to sit down and have a very a very raw conversation, <clears throat> section by section, because I think it's one thing to watch it, but I think it'd be another thing to sit down and us actually have a discussion about it. And I think that's the easiest way for us to do it without all of us taking time to read the book, even though I would love to, but I know I can't do that in the next month. <laughs> like I could try, but I got too much on my plate. So I think that's an easy way for us to bring the information to people and hopefully they'll get curious and decide that they want to read the book. So, all right, um, Scorpio, you were up. Thank you for waiting. So with this, with this uh, Hunnan Square uh, situation, I was I looked at an article link from the article that was just read, and another one too. Um, this this is like a this, it's the tip of the iceberg because the police officers are seemingly plain clothed in there, like they don't have to wear uniform, and they seem like they have like armored vehicles in the garage. And they're describing the rooms. And these is coming from ex-cops and attorneys that was granted access. One thing that the officers told the attorneys was that they have to leave their phone. Then they can come in. So I guess you can't, like, can't record anything or whatever because they take your device. That's where you can't, like, do anything. So that's what they described, though. Like, there's a room that is just 
a cage and it's just a room and they got lights and apparently one of the people that was investigated was an officer who has jailed a lot of black black men and they were detective Chicago detective turned Guantanamo Guantanamo Bay torturer and they're examining their cases now on the people they arrested and how they've quote unquote interrogated black people into trying to get you know charges it's this is pretty deep like there is no sign it's just red bricks and there's nothing like they don't they don't really give you the idea that this is police facility because in there they got drugs and then they got drugs that they seemingly recovered or they stored like this is a whole police facility just people don't know that it's right there oh that's real okay does anybody have anything else like oof. I don't even have a lot just because like it's just frustrating right because this article is six this article is six years old right and the only reason why i pulled it up is because i feel like a lot of people missed this article right like patricia did you hear about this article when it came out see so it's like we have to pull it back but it's just like we keep talking about this so six years ago we know about black sites right and here we are now and now we know that all these um now we know that all these murders um are happening and that they've been misclassified it's just when do we when do we say when do we stand up and say enough is enough it reminds me of bond to uh told me how like when people was coming to me and they were talking about everyone else they always trivialize the fact that in America there is a current genocide happening. And this, and this, is, a, this is our third one. Sorry, I'm yep. sorry, I'm talking over you. It, it, hap it happens too much and then people don't really think of the, of the scale of it. Like it continues to happen every, every time. So the trauma, the, the distrust, everything is there and then people don't even want to consider it when they're discussing these issues. It's just a lot. It's so much. Like, uh, Gabriel, can you do me a favor? Can you pull up the definition of genocide and read it for me? Because I don't think people understand that we check a lot. Of, we check those boxes. I think people just think that black people are just complaining and that, you know, we're tired of the little bit. We're tired of a little discrimination. I don't think that they understand that black people have been going through genocide gener through multiple generations and are in a current one right now. Yeah, they think it's off-color jokes and you know just insults but they don't take into account like how our rights are just constantly violated and how we're we're basically disenfranchised from so many sectors of this society i'm sorry go ahead gabriel you know enough which one fit which one well i want to this is what i'd like to do here's the gen here's here's a kind of general one which is the deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. Um, I think that's solid, but I also um, was gonna pull from the UN definition because I think, you know, people feel like, oh, you know, Who's serious about this stuff? You know, it's an international problem. It's not, this isn't, nothing like this happens here. Um, so the UN definition, I'm just gonna read this part. 
in the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. A, killing members of the group. B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or part. I'm going to reread that. C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or part. D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. E, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So that's a little more detailed, um, but honestly, I think you don't have to tick all those boxes for it to be genocide. As it turns out, in America, we have. Yes, we literally check all of the boxes. So I need people to understand that this is much deeper than what you understand it to be. Because there's a disconnect between Black America and white America. We are living in very different worlds and we're living in very different lives. And the only way you're going to really understand is if we start connecting because the, the media is not telling y'all what's going on in our communities. And then they do these little drop of an article, but that wasn't all over YouTube. I know, I know some Black people talked about it, but it wasn't all over YouTube. It wasn't all over the news. It was, it was a blip and then it was gone. So, whew, sorry, I'm just like, we have so much work to do. It's just so frustrating to me because it's just like, our people are dying every day, right? And people are like, well, why don't, you know, reparations should wait, you should put reparations on with that. My people are dying every day. I understand that your families are struggling and I want to help you too, but it cannot be at the sacrifice of my people. Either we can get it together, i.e. we get reparations, we do this federal jobs guarantee, we expand social security so people have enough money, because you were talking about how you have a UBI, Patricia, but you actually have the BI part. The U part is the universal part, which ends up being the problem a lot of times, but it could be expanded to cover anybody that needs to be covered who cannot work or who does not, who cannot work or, you know, for people who decide that somebody wants to be a primary caregiver to a child, we can let them do that. You know, there's going to be a million of reasons why people can't or don't want to work. We could expand social security to cover those people for everybody else, the federal jobs guarantee, and we can build the new society that we want. Like we can do that together. Like you can give us reparations and we can fight for all this other stuff and then we can have our Medicare for all and we can have our housing as a human right and we can have all of these goodies and things that we need but the only way the floodgates going to come through is if y'all give us reparations and we're going to have to get out here and become MMT evangelists so we can explain to people how we pay for all the goodies that come to us and how we pay for it is the government makes the money they print all of it. We can never run out of it. We can never have to borrow from another country for it because it's ours. You can't borrow something that they don't process or make because that would be counterfeit. <laughs> so we can pay for everything and we'll put more of it in. We have a video with Steve Grumbine where he came on the Reset Ratio. I'm actually going to have him come on this show next year so he can talk to us about MMT and a federal jobs guarantee. I plan on definitely, um, he's definitely excited about stuff and I know he's an evangelist for that so we're going to make sure. But the thing what I'm saying is if we come together and fight for the table, 
we can get everything we need. But if not, Sam is going to burn up the table and we're going to starve to death together. Because my people are already starving and dying. Go ahead, Patricia. You're new to this. Patricia's yeah. never had to take this up front. Don't <laughs> show me your palm on the person. Check it out, man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Scorpio, you can go after Patricia. Patricia. I don't want to make work for you. Cut that out. No, I'm just going to say um, for the audience, what was that um, statistic about black wealth and white wealth? I think oh, that would yeah. be great time to say that, and I don't have it in my head. No, what no, I'll pull it up. Actually, I'll pull up Verity's thing. Go ahead and keep talking. I'll put it in there. Keep talking. Yeah, we'll I think that is so important, um, along with you know getting up to date with everything that's happened since slavery to black Americans. So between those two, I mean, you got justice and you got ju the justice of the pain and suffering. That's going to be like so healing, I think, for a lot of people, black people and white people, and bring you guys up so that we can all work together to make America better. You know, and all those universal programs, this is what I've come to realize. You guys are right. I mean, the programs aren't going to help if you're all still sitting on the bottom and being abused. So, mm -hmm. and also the poor white people, but obviously, yeah, we don't, yeah, it's different as far as. Yeah, you know, true, but they're, they're <laughs> valid too. Yeah. A better country for everybody is a better country for us all, right? So we got to care about everybody. No more sacrifice people. I really need all right, to go ahead. I don't see how America can make it and move forward with all these challenges we have. Uh, starving and abusing our people, what kind of thing is that? So we need some justice and parity. That's true. All right, give me a second. I'm gonna pull up that chart, Patricia. Yeah. Patricia. This is Black Wealth and White Wealth put together by Quintile. So if you look at this chart, you will see at every level, black people have less money than white people, even the poor whites. The poor whites have, are at least in the, they're in the positive. They're poor, they're real poor, but they're in the positive. We're negative. Then you get to the second quintile, right? So 66,520, let's just round up for extra money, right? 67,000, we're gonna round up on ours too, up to 1,200. So people who have $1,200 don't necessarily live next to people. Well, no, we can still kind of live together there because we're still kind of poor, but you see the difference, right? We barely have much more money than your first quintile. So you basically could move the second quintile of Black people into the first. So basically, your poor, our, um, ours that have a little bit of money are just a, like a little bit better off than your poor. And that's in the second quintile, right? We get to the third quintile, 189,000, right? Next, next to 24,000. Y'all don't live in the same neighborhoods. Fourth quintile, 436,000 to 85,730, right? And then we get into the top, right? Because Sagar likes to talk about, oh, it's only in the top 10% that there's the gap. If you notice, there's a gap at every level. But Let's say you make it, right? Top white families, top five, five quintile, $1.6 million. Black folks, 324,000. We can round it up to 325. 
So we don't have the money that you have. So when you talk to me about us needing to fix class, I, if you really wanted to fix class, none of the programs that you're proposing fix class. It doesn't fix it for you guys. It does not shift the actual amount of money in each group. Because y'all keep talking about class stuff. We got to stop talking about income. We got to stop talking about income and start talking about wealth. Or we got to start talking about both of them. Because I don't see how we move forward without actually doing some type of wealth redistribution. Because everybody, like they always like, it's all class, it's all class. But if you notice, if you see Black people are the lowest class of the race. So the race, our race is our class. We're the bottom. So Black's race is their class and their class status is the bottom. So there you go. Sorry. I don't know if that made sense, but to yeah. So if we're saying their class is the most important thing, then Black have our, our own class and we're at the bottom of poor whites. Boom. Yeah, and that's from inheritance because you're constantly, every time you turn around, um, being prevented from borrowing money, building wealth, getting a house opening a business, working together, they come in and destroy what you're doing or restrict what you're doing. So how can you pass things down to your kids? Even if it's, you know, $50,000 or something. All right, I would have let Scorpio yeah. go because he had his hand up like forever. <laughs> and after him, go ahead, Mud, because Scorpio has been so patient. He doesn't talk over us or anything. He's so amazing. <laughs> um, as you guys are talking about the... Uh, racial uh, wealth gap and the discrepancies and everything. Um, it was about the, the trivialization of the violence that's currently happening to Black Americans in this country. Um, it was the fact that there are, when people try to point out, this is officer that was arresting people for drug charges. And this district attorney just looked at uh, all those files and those videotapes in which the officer basically stopped people. And they found out that for over a hundred cases, the officer planted drugs on camera in the cars of people and got them, you know, uh, jailed and charged for a crime they didn't really commit. Um, and the district attorney uh, that went and told people got in trouble for that from their boss who said, why did you do that? Uh, so when it comes to the underreporting of people when it comes to the uh, police violence, that stuff also is not really uh, measured either. That stuff isn't really included. Like there's so much stuff that's ignored and like just in general. I came off my, cause uh, Patricia said the thing about inheritance. And it's not that I wanna downplay that. It's just that people will point to like these studies that say, basically that show that, you know, um, that it isn't necessarily inheritance for uh, a lot of uh, white people. And there's a little trick to that because um, inheritance is only, talk about, only talking about the assets that you receive um, once like your parent passes away or something like that. When someone passes away, it does not include uh, wealth transfers that happen during your parents' uh, lifetime or your family member's lifetime. So, um, and, I think that kind of illustrates this, and I know it's not a, uh, an example that everyone can relate to because obviously it's kind of crazy, but you remember when Mitt Romney talked about, um, and it's kind of a controversial thing where you talk about you can yes. go to your parents and, and borrow a million dollars. 
Um, <laughs> Romney actually said 20,000, but for black people, he might as well said a million. Well, I thought it was the quote was a million dollars, but either way, you're talking no, it was about something like 20,000, but it was just it's for, but for black people, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And I, it, yeah. yeah, go ahead. But yeah, if, if, if your family does not have either way, the example, basically what I'm saying is if your family does not have that wealth, you can't just easily do that. And for a lot of black people, that's not something that you can do during your, during your parents' lifetime or after their death. Um, but the discrepancy will st still be there. It, it will show up as far as the inequality in wealth, but it's not going to show up if you're just looking at inheritances. And but then there's like, you know, the inheritance of uh, a legacy slot at an Ivy League. So you look at someone like George yep. Bush, who was clearly not intelligent enough. If it was a competitive, if Harvard was a competitive university, he would not have made it in. Um, but he was a legacy. You, you're never going to get that. And, and literally, probably black folks will never have a relevant legacy slot in Ivy Leagues, because even if you do reparations now and, and folks start getting treated the same like that, all, you got all these white folks who have been having kids and, you know, you got all generations Kennedys. Forget it. You could have 20 Kennedys in line for a spot at Harvard and you, and you could have, you know, black folks waiting forever. So some of that some of that is so intangible and yet so important that that literally made him president because people when they said he wasn't bright enough you know, to be president, which I think was literally true. I don't think he had the cognitive capacity. They said, well, he has an MBA from Harvard. What are you talking about? Facts. <laughs> All right. Um... Um, do a shout out to Kim Janey, mayor of Boston, first black mayor of Boston. Okay. Who um, unfortunately was not reelected. Boston just m missed a huge opportunity. She got that spot. Um, she, she basically... Um, slid in like she wasn't elected in she someone else left so she had it and she was doing some good work but um we're about to kind of see boston's opinion of black folks we're about to see uh at least part of the reason why um yep. they weren't ready for someone to prioritize that group well let's look at the i, I want to get super in the weeds but here's something i like that caught my mm -hmm. eye a Boston metropolitan statistical area sample characteristics, right? So U.S. Black 71 observations, 43% have college degrees, 24% are married, 24.8%, so might as well say 25. <laughs> Average age is 55. Median income is 41,000, which is, you know, the oh, Puerto Ricans are struggling in Boston. Jesus. All righty, let's keep on going. So I just wanted to throw that out there. We see, hey, listen, I, I got, you got to call it out where you see it. I, I'm going to keep going. Like, oh, but damn. See, this is, this is why people need to get on board with the rest of my agenda. Y'all out here trying to fight me about not getting reparations and y'all sitting around here with 25,000 income. We need a federal jobs guarantee at like $30 an hour. There's, if we have that, there's no way that you make that a year. So, whew, all right, I want to keep going, but I just wanted people to see this. So like, uh, like almost half, no, you know, over 40% of the people that they're looking at have bachelor's degrees. So think about that. If the, if the wealth is $8, 40 something percent of these folks got bachelor's degrees. Just think about that. So you got a bachelor's degree to have $8. You might've had more money if you did it. 
Sorry, I'm going, I'm trying to get to the actual thing where it shows. Oh, it gets into everything. These are the financial assets. I'm not going to go into this. One of these days we'll have to really get through this though, because I could go through this. I'm going to cut a lot of this fat too. U.S. Black wealth, $8. Caribbean Blacks, 12000 Puerto Ricans, 3000 We all, oh, Jesus. Other Hispanics. Look at the white number at the top, 247 I wish they had the, I wish they had, I wish they, um, look at that though. That's just wild. So white folks got 247, almost 248,000. Everybody else broke. We the brokest, but everybody else broke. Think about this. This is wild. This is the foundation, right? This is, this is one of the colonial cities. And so the culture's deepest. This is the real deal. This is the culture. It's about extracting wealth from everybody else. Did you know those white people aren't working hard? Not all of them who have that money. Well, look at, well, where is Boston? You know, these are right? people always think about slave states like the South, but Boston is old as shit. That's an, that's, that's this is so important, Sam. Like, you know? That point, yep. Like, so that wealth didn't go nowhere. And some people who let go of their slaves in the, remember, the people who still had slaves in certain places didn't have to give up their slaves to a certain point because that was for the South. And then on the other hand, a lot of places didn't get rid of slavery to like 60 years before the war. So there was all right. that wealth accumulated in those families before and they got to keep that wealth because they sided with the North. So they didn't get robbed of it. Y'all got to start thinking more. You got to start weaving stuff together a little bit better. And maybe you do, but, and I just know a lot of history. You got anything Scorpio? Um, there are basketball players that talk about how, you know, anti-Black Boston is and why sometimes they don't want to go there and play for Boston because it's anti-Black and they basically deal with, you know, a lot of, uh, antagonism from the Boston audience. No, that's real. And it's, and, and the thing that is so insane to me is how do you as a five foot ish person and this goes for men and women because i've seen women do this think that you can sit and jeer and poke at a six eight 260 250 200 you understand what i'm saying pal man y'all are brave that's just how y'all know that negroes are bound by by financial by money right because if these people didn't make this kind of money they would haul off and whoop your ass Yep. I always wonder, you wake up one day, you go to this game, and your thing is, I'm about to call that person right there the N-word. Yeah. I don't know why that was, like, what you wanted to choose that day, how you wanted to spend your time. But I'm, I'm like, man, I, I, I don't know what they – um because there's a lot of people in, like – in basketball that are anti-black and people don't talk about that a lot of people in that sport are anti-black and many basketball players talked about how they had to be subjected to anti-black slurs from the audience and this, it goes unnoticed for the interest of the league of course. which is a lot of them is owned by a lot of white um Old white owners because mm -hmm. you know those owners nobody talked about the owners the general managers there's people in the staff so you know, yeah, they own the be old money. It costs yep. a lot of money to own a basketball team or a football team. That's old money. 
a lot of them are bankers connected with bankers connected with powerful people people don't even know that either like some sometimes it's like four owners mm-hmm. and they they co-own and they literally might be connected with the bank or own a bank so I, I it's just a lot of them are billionaires like a lot of them are one of the richest people like part of the richest people in the world just in general all right does anybody have anything else I want to say something behind what Scorpio just said and really what you said too, Sam, because this is so I, I I hope people as they're listening are thinking about the economics that are being laid on the because I think it's so it's so critical to what we're talking about that this isn't first of all, just like the job of the of of the police never ends. It's like the job of our economy is to hold on to the money that was stolen from black people. Like it's a real specific job. So things like basketball or, you know, any of the entertainment complexes, the big, you know, the, these vast um, uh, empires of wealth that people have, a lot of that is allowed specifically, if not exclusively, because the point is to keep the wealth away from the people from whom is stolen. So it's not, you know, you if you're just looking at face value at, I don't know, a black billionaire. And so you feel a little better about things or an entertainment, like um, whether it's music or sports or whatever, you think there's some progress or whatever, look behind whatever is right in front of you and realize that the actual wealth is all in the same place doing the same thing. A whole bunch of money was stolen. And Sam just said this, the South, it's not like the North wasn't Everyone was down with slavery in America. We should not. Abraham Lincoln's family were slaveholders. It's not like there was always this argument and like the stupid South where white people had were evil and wicked and the smart, virtuous North people. Everyone was down for it if they were white. Everyone said, let's build a country where we are so we're so comfortable with this idea that we're not going to treat black folks like citizens that we can literally write down all men are created equal and we don't have to explain what that we're not including everyone like we all understand not that guy you know there's not even a reason to have that conversation just like it didn't have to be you know um but we're not going to let women vote like there were just certain things that you just didn't even have to say but it was it was universal it was pervasive and people need to as they're listening to all of this stitch it together what we're trying to lay on you is like a, a, a range of understanding that eight, it, it's not about black it, keeping black folks down to eight dollars worth of assets every day in Boston is hard work and the reason Boston is so good at this is that they've been at it since the founding of the country 1600s 1500s from the beginning of the invention of this diabolical enterprise and we got to fix it or we got to burn it down. That's what Sam's saying. That's why that's the, if John, John Brown left us in a sentence, we would like to fix it. But if not, we got to burn it down because we'll all fail. Look, no country, just check your history internationally. No country that tries to commit genocide against one part of the population then is successful economically. You, you ruin your economy through your madness. So we're all going down where the other It's just it, it. If you don't fix this problem, there's not a workaround. That's what Sam said uh, about like the North, the KKK leader a hundred years ago said that, oh no, we stronger in the North and the South. Like he said it out of his own mouth. And it was funny. 
Because he's like, because, you know, when you look at stories and you look at um, events that have took place, many people weren't necessarily living in the area. They just traveled there. They literally traveled there, went there and said, oh, I'm going to be there with my KKK brethren to take down the black person from being, you know, franchised. One thing I wanted to say about yeah. like just this country in general is how it's always been geared to produce 90% of the resources for white people. That's never not been the case in this country. So when you start talking about, well, it's black culture, well, black culture has changed at least from slavery to now. Yet that 90% number has never changed. Like you can't, I don't understand what people don't understand about this. So it's really, really difficult for me to like try to reach out and like grab people and say, hey, don't you see we're all being robbed of black people, like black people are getting it the worst. Like, and you're working with the system that's screwing you. I just, it completely boggles my mind. I think it's a stoic revisionism. Uh, there's like certain areas where they teach uh, people at elementary school that slavery was good for us and that we was happy and dancing with rainbows in the sky. That's what they toast kids sometimes or they'd be like, well, we've made this progress to end racism, but it ain't over. It's never been over. Those old people that like, there's literal videos of the like 70s and the 80s where there was a lot of anti-blackness in communities. And you know, you have black children wondering why, why, why am I being treated like this? Like it just gets swept under the rug and people keep thinking that everything is over, but like no one, they never ask themselves, like no one, cause you know, you're young, like somebody's young in school and they're a child, but like the person that's reading it never asks themselves, wait a minute, where, where did all those people go? Where did, where did like uh, the people that was committing all these acts of violence go after like they passed legislation? Did they just go home and not do nothing anymore? Do they not have kids? Do they not teach their kids and, you know, give their kids all this stuff? Like it's, it's questions that people don't ask when they're kind of like, you know, basically um, brainwashed by propaganda. And, and, it, and it makes you wonder, it makes you wonder like in 2021, uh, why are we still here? In the information age, by the way, too, because you can Google some of this stuff. Well, um, I wanted to jump in real quick because um, it's interesting that, you know, we kind of had this show talking about um, the brutality of police and how, you know, it's a, it's a thing that we're currently dealing with. Like, it's, it, it has... It's not something like they try to make it seem like all of the, the issues that we're talking about are in some great distant past. And um, reality is, is that we're still dealing with this stuff. Uh, even, even though like Martin Luther King kind of gets whitewashed, especially when it comes to the I have a dream speech, there is a segment of that speech that no one really pays attention to. And it's the part where he talks about when um, the work of a, a civil rights would be done. And I, I don't necessarily agree with this, but it, it is a good point that he made. And basically he's saying that his work would be done when uh, police brutality is ended. And the only part of that speech we always hear about is, you know, uh, about the 
children playing together and equality. There are some parts of that speech that people really need to look at because it is still applicable to today, to our situation today. And I mean, we have not gotten to that point that everyone seems to think we gotten to. And they use that speech in this twisted way to try to try to argue that. That's that's good. Does anybody have anything else? If not, I have. Yeah, I got whitewashing part. Like Ronald Reagan was on camera whitewashing MLK just to oppose affirmative action, saying that Martin Luther King wouldn't want this. And that sort of sentiment has stood the test of time when people are bringing up that you're not Martin Luther King. You, uh, Martin Luther King, wouldn't want what you want. He wouldn't care about race, et cetera, et cetera. Never understanding that like MLK was saying thing. MLK was inspired by people they don't even know that they would not even like to this day. And 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 now I understand that Ronald Reagan was on the phone with Richard Nixon talking about how we were monkeys and whatnot, like literally disrespecting black people and treating black people as if they were just animals. Same dude that's basically trying to use MLK about equality. Like I don't think they understand how, you know, white, how white people kind of try, like white people try to pretend as if they give a damn when really like they have nefarious intentions all the time. And some folks just try to think that it's just cause you're very um, hostile and, and uh, spiteful in some way, but in, in actuality, you're very observant of what's going on and they're, and they're not wanting to pay attention to what's actually going on. Definitely true. I think white people also have double consciousness and like, it's like almost psychopathic <laughs> to where like, they can sort of turn off their humanity in a way, or at least not apply it to black people. And I think that comes with like, not necessarily like the, like the biological, the genetics of being a white person. I think it become it comes with the sociology of being a white person. That's, that's a good way of saying it. That's a good way of saying it. Cause that's, that's what we, uh, people try to point out that it's not that you're born this way. It's like, it's the, it's the circumstances of what the society just is and how it's been constructed. And it's been like this for a very long time. I was gonna say, it's, that's pretty much it, right? It's socialization and these mental constructs. And then when people, you try to talk to somebody, you try to talk to a white person about what black people are going through and you know their eyes glaze over and you know, it's like the same reaction, even talking about reparations. Get to that now. It's black people. I mean, that's the only reason. But yet, press them, and they can't say, well, explain your thoughts to me on that. Or maybe look at your thoughts more. Where are you getting these ideas? Here's some facts about what's going on. Maybe reconsider. I mean, some people intentionally don't want to hear about it, and others, they just you know, you're over here somewhere and they think you're fine. That's not true. I think the worst part is that you have to prove it exists. And that's like, that means that inherently to them, it's not proven that like neutrally that it doesn't exist to them. Like the fact that you have to prove it is, is a problem. Like you should already know it exists. But the fact that you don't know it exists means that, that means this environment, whatever this institution is or this country or this society has not acknowledged the history and the current ongoing oppression of groups of people the fact you have to prove that it exists when like you can clearly see that every, most persons except barack obama have all been white men 
and many of them own slaves because I know they try to whitewash history again by talking about how Donald Trump is dangerous, but not including the fact that, you know, you have multiple presidents that were presidents that owned slaves. Mm -hmm. What they did and how they, you know, violated the humanity of the people that they considered property. The legislation they were passing, even the fact that when they, you know, uh, stopped the importations of slaves, that the reason they stopped that was because they didn't want too many slaves in their country. They don't want no in insurrection. Mm -hmm. As they were trying to stop that during the, you know, all, all the stuff they had with the slave patrols and, and the fact that they was trying to stop slave revolts. I don't think they, I don't think they comprehend their own history. Well, that's why we got a lot of stuff to go through. I can't wait to read Gerald Horn's The Counter-Revolution of 1776 with this group, because I'm telling you, when he be talking about the slave revolts, ooh, baby, somebody find me a book on slave revolts, that good one, too, where they just be talking about all of it. I need all that good stuff, because, ooh. I mean, like, I have a couple of books if you need some. Of course. But like, if you give me if you give me book titles, you know, I I can look up. I, I can start looking. I just personally don't have any outside of yeah. where he, he touches on it briefly in the book. But I know there's books written that because mm, I know I have the um, Louisiana one. And okay. I think there's a couple of more books that goes into like specific slave revolts because step it away like all oh, yeah, over for sure and that's why i want to bring that i want to bring that back for sure here yeah. let me play this part because i want to kind of double back to where <clears throat> he was talking about in the textbooks how in the textbooks they teach you that the slaves were happy and you know slavery was a good and <clears throat> but i wanted to get into you know well why is that so I want to play this simple video. Let me know if y'all want me to stop it anywhere in the video where we can kind of talk about it some more. Because normally I put the videos in later, but I think it's good for us to discuss it, right? Since we all here just talk about stuff. My lighting is going to start to get more and more terrible as the sun moves behind out here. And at my mother's house, I can't smoke in her house. And I have a serious smoking addiction. So y'all are just going to have to let me live. So I'm just going to be funky with the camera for a while until I finally decide to go in the house or till it gets dark enough for me to pop a light up. We believe the things we believe. We believe that reparations has to come first because of everything that we've learned. So I got to get y'all caught up because once you're caught up, if you still don't care, then you can go about your merry way. But I feel like most of you guys are good people and you're going to feel differently. So, all right, let me play this video. Listen to how this textbook describes slavery. The master often had a barbecue or a picnic for his slaves. Then they had a great frolic. Even while working in the cotton fields, they sang songs. The beat of the music and the richness of their voices made work seem light. Yikes, that's from History of Georgia, a textbook published in 1954 that was taught across junior high schools in Georgia for decades. That sort of language is part of an intellectual movement called the Lost Cause, a distorted version of American Civil War history that's been prevalent in the South for a long time. It took shape soon after the defeat of the Confederate States in the war, when Southern historians like Edward Pollard and former Confederate General Jubal Early started preserving the South's perspective through their writings. They framed the Confederate 
cause as a heroic defense of the Southern way of life against the overwhelming forces in the North. That narrative has a few basic tenets. The glorification of Confederate soldiers who died for a cause they believed in, the belief that slavery was a benevolent institution, and maybe most importantly, that slavery was not the root cause of the war. The Lost Cause is one of the most notoriously effective efforts to rewrite history, and it was done by the losing side. So how did it become so deeply rooted in Southern memory? Blame the United Daughters of the Confederacy. The UDC was founded in Nashville in 1894 to preserve Confederate culture for generations to come. The women who made up the group descended from elite antebellum families, and they used their social and political clout to spread the pro-Southern version of the war as real history. You've probably seen their efforts to honor the Confederacy, but maybe you didn't know it was the UDC. They're the ones who covered the Southern landscape with memorials for Confederate leaders and soldiers. They used their fundraising and lobbying skills to pressure local governments into erecting monuments in prominent public spaces like courthouses and state capitals. Installed here next to the state capitol by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. The United Daughters of the Confederacy donated this memorial to the city back in the 30s. They put them along roadsides and in parks. Any place that was remotely relevant to the Confederacy. So I want to pause there because um, did y'all catch where they said the Daughters of the Confederacy donated that in the 1930s? That's the height of the Black Codes, right? So they were telling their Negroes to get back in their place. <laughs> Anybody got anything for this? Because, you know, if, I think sometimes- got, Well, statues. Yeah, after the word, aren't, aren't they the ones responsible for most of those uh, statues of the Confederate heroes being built and erected mm -hmm. on? People, uh, when it comes to statues too, people don't even know that many military bases are named after Confederate leaders. Yes. You find that out when you just look up the name, you just look up, what is this? They, they'd be like, John, John McAdoo or something. You'd be like, who's John? And then you look up, oh, Confederate leader that fought in the Civil War. And I'm like, how come so many uh, people that you guys name everything after is the, is the Confederate leaders? I thought you guys beat them and they were traitors to the country. It is no different from World War II. And we, it's whatever happened in Germany. Keep going. Yeah, it's no different from World War II. We're... We were more supportive of Nazis and to this day still are than Germany ever was. We brought them here. We got them jobs. We, but we worked with them all through the war. IBM created the system that made it possible to systematically eliminate as many people as were eliminated through concentration camps. It would have just been too hard. But thanks to the ingenuity of Americans, there was a genocide. I, we, this is... This is our bailiwick. This is the wheelhouse of white people in America. And we never, we didn't defeat, we didn't, that wasn't a war over slavery in the sense that we didn't want anyone to be oppressed anymore. The priorities were totally different. Uh, with the video that you're showing, say, Sam. I, I'm sorry, go ahead, I'm done. With the video that you were showing, Sam, like uh, a big question I always have is why is no one ever talking about how like because everyone's saying why is america still like this why is no one talking about the fact that in schools they are teaching kids that slavery was good for black people why is that never a thing that gets brought up well and the thing is though i there you know there are a lot of people that have been taught that and yet they never bring it up they never bring up anything regarding that fact that people are being taught that slavery is good 
for for black people like you know they got um certain institutions where uh that's mainly white like, there's many schools right now there's segregation academies that you know limit the amount of black people they want in there and basically just want white people in there and these still exist because there's a lot of schools in which that were based on you know um not integrating black people into you know schooling because white people basically destroyed their public school systems just to keep the black people out back then when they passed the brown versus white education um, policy so it, it's a uh, no one's talking about that these institutions still exist and they're and they're based off anti-blackness and they're based off you know this sort of like this sort of narrative to preserve their their um their power structures their their way of life which is inherently anti-black and white supremacist because he gets the it he's the he's the he's the dandata so anybody got anything before scorpio this is a quick thing about the u.s census scorpio unite <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, Patricia. Um, yeah, the U.S. Census. I worked for them last summer. Okay. And uh, one of the things that really surprised me, going around, was how many of the people. I mean, it's ninety-nine percent white people around here. They have no idea about their background. They don't even know their great grandparents. They say, and they say, well, you're an ethnic group. They don't know. They don't know what their name is. And to me. That's strange. They definitely know it's about on my purpose. Rape. They did it on purpose. Huh? Yeah. I mean, they did it to us on purpose. You're yeah. American. You're white. You're not anything else. You're anti-black. That's all you're supposed to be oh, here. You're not supposed to that. talk about I'm, you know, Italian American. I'm, you know, maybe German. Maybe if you're Northern European. But really, bottom line, I'm here for one purpose only. Where's those black people at? That's our whole function. Still, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. See, I didn't talk to any white people when I did the census. It was all Latinos for me, Latinos and a few black people. Uh, that was it. That was all. And Latinos don't like having to classify under race. At least not the ones where I am. Uh, let me say, let me say Mexicans, because that's the majority of the people that I dealt with. They were Mexicans. They don't like being classified under race. They're not feeling that at all. They don't want to be white. They don't want to be black. They just want to be Mexican. All righty then, Scorpio. It's it's all yours. Bring us home. You know, with all we saw today, with everything we've uh, witnessed and Pete, I mean, this is not. Um, anything new to what we have already been known. Like uh, how we started out with the article as what one person did not do. We gotta, we gotta talk about solutions. We gotta talk about things that, the ways that we can try to solve these problems and actually try to address all this, which uh, this platform has been talking about for a very long time, uh, reparations and, um, you know, uh, proposals to try to, for one, address the systematic and institutional errors of this system and the failures of this system, which is by design, you know, uh, what they wanted because, you know, it's for their interests and not ours. But, um, you know, that's one thing, I, that's one thing I'm understanding a lot from all these uh, stories, all these videos, everything, you know, solutions has to be brought forth, solutions have to be discussed uh, because the study did bring forth solutions. And like we saw with the um, uh, Hunnan Square, 
this is not this is never going to end because they're not looking for a solution. So when you bring out the problem, they're not going to care about the problem. They're going to probably give you some PR to say, yeah, you know, it sucks. But hey, you know, tomorrow we're going to give you pancakes and everybody to be drugged by the pancakes while they go back tomorrow telling you that, yeah, man, you have to stay chained up to that cage right there because, you know, you, you did something that we didn't like. And it, it could be small. It can be it can be trivial, but they don't care. So, you know, unless uh, unless those. Uh, Unless you know, we start talking about solutions. We ain't gonna we ain't gonna solve anything, um, and that's what a lot of people are doing to this day. And that's one thing that uh, people you know watching should do at the end. You know, start thinking about what did people do or what can we do, instead of like wondering like, oh, this all is happening. It's like, well, yeah, but what what can we do to solve it? What's it trying to tell you? Because one thing I got from the article in the beginning it was, was like, you know, maybe maybe one maybe we can just. Uh, maybe create our own independent organization and make our own open source with a whole database in it, you know, because if I saw the money from BLM, I would be like, that money should have been into something where we can build our own database to collect information and police killings and everything. So we don't have to rely on, we don't rely on the government. We can rely on what we got over here and then people can link it. People can, you know, reference it, source it and be like, oh, we don't, well, we don't care if you underreported. We got the resources right here. We got our own independent investigators on the scene getting the cause of death. And we already working with the families of the victims, and we are and we making sure that this is stored and safe, and y'all can't get rid of it. So anytime somebody looks back at these cases and saw and sees all this, and we got all the information right over here, we already know why this happened. We we already know how many of y'all are committing the acts of violence on you know and pe people in this country, Black Americans in this country, and other groups of people in this country. It ain't, it ain't no, it ain't no debate. It ain't no, uh, it ain't no uh, ambiguous language. It's clear and it's. And it's going to be clear and it's going to be there's going to be no multiple interpretations to this. It is what it is. And they're going to have to just deal with that. 22, 22. All right. Well, OK, so this is Ferguson's conspiracy against black citizens, how the city's leadership harassed and brutalized their way to multiple civil rights violations. Despite the uncertainty surrounding the killings of Michael Brown, the killing of Michael Brown, many black residents of Ferguson, Missouri, immediately thought he was the victim of a wrongful death at the hands of police officer Darren Wilson, who shot him after a scuffle. This week, the Department of Justice concluded that there is no evidence to disprove Officer Wilson's claim that he feared for his life during the encounter. And the federal agency also presented context that explains why so many black residents assumed foul play and took to the streets in protest. For years, Ferguson's police forces meted out brutality, violated civil rights, and helped Ferguson's officials leech off the black community as shamelessly as would mafia bosses. I'm a little offended by that. So far, a disproportionate amount of press attention has focused on racist emails circulated by Ferguson officials, causing two to be fired and one to be placed on leave. While the correspondence in question is deeply offensive and worthy of condemnation, it is nowhere near, nowhere close to the most objectionable transgression documented in the DOJ report, which ought to prompt multiple Ferguson officials to resign in disgrace and provoke condemnations from across the political spectrum. Nearly every page shocks the conscience. Ferguson officials repeatedly behaved as if their priority is not improving public safety or protecting the rights of residents, but maximizing the revenue that flows into city coffers, 
sometimes going so far as to anticipate decreasing sales tax revenues and urging the police force to make up for the shortfall by ticketing more people. Often well, these let me, tickets- Let me pause you right there, right? Mm-hmm. Reparations, hold on, let me. I tell you, reparations, reparations, reparations. This does not happen to people with money. If you pull over the wrong person with money, you might lose your job or you might be sitting somewhere in a crappy location. Like these are the things that do not happen to rich kids. I, at one point I worked at Universal Studios, Hollywood. Like I had friends who were rich kids. They were Hollywood kids. Like, no, these things don't happen in these neighborhoods and in these communities. This happens to poor people. Only poor people are allowed to be preyed upon. This is basically saying that they were preying upon the citizens of this of this town. Imagine that. Imagine that you are the revenue stream for another town. This is wild. It's, it's, but you know what? It's also everywhere. We have, so South Shore is a neighborhood in Chicago. Um, predominantly black neighborhood on the south side and people were getting tickets for years and didn't understand what they were for like they would park they would come home they would park they'd have a ticket they'd contest it they'd lose and they, it was just like confusion until this this young man really really smart young man um started just tracking all of the people who got the tickets and figured out you know when you drive um and it, it doesn't always make sense to you, but you'll see like on a normal residential street, there's one of those no parking signs that's like, don't park from here to the corner. And it's probably like, you know, they want visibility at the corner or they just don't want, for whatever reason, there'll be a little piece of the, of the street you're not supposed to park on. They were using that law, but didn't have those signs up in the neighborhood the the data that he collected in terms of the disproportionate amount of revenue that was coming out of south shore compared to the rest of the city and he did it but like neighborhood by neighborhood was shocking of course he got on tv there was like an article in the free paper and stuff like that um what what they did was add those signs but they're still ticketing the hell out of everyone it's just um you know reparations right they would not have done that the signs would have been up in the first place, but they sure as hell wouldn't have been just ticketing you randomly and thinking they didn't have to explain themselves. And even the judges were like, I don't know what you did, but you're guilty. Um, I did hear generally speaking about what was going down in Ferguson, but specifically that note. So you, you got the outline, but you didn't get like the full details of like how they were literally like preying on the citizens. Right. And yeah, I got the outline and I was following Chuck Moji and he was there. Okay, I remember him. Yeah, he's good on he's good on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I see Bones. I see that you sent that video. There's there's multiple videos I saw uh, where like this black kid is jogging and then this officer stops him and he's like, am I being detained or whatever? And the officer is pressuring him to abide by his demand. I know people would say uh that you have to you have to uh, uh like a listen to the officer and i'm and i look at them and say so you're telling me that i have to listen to this person or i die 
I hope you understand with that. Like, because people talk about authoritarianism in other countries and whatnot, but I look at them and say, you're telling me I have to listen to this police officer or he kills me. I hope they understand how like terrible that really um, sounds and feels. Like you, if you don't listen to this officer, you caused your own death. Like you didn't deserve to be treated with any respect, any humanity. There's another, there's even like other videos where uh, you have uh, two black men sitting in a car and it's a rental and the officer comes and stops them. And then like uh, the officer uh, asks him, so is that your keys there? And he's like, yeah, I just start the injection. That's how I just drive the car. Then the officer takes the um, car, um, takes the car keys and puts it on top of the vehicle. So he can't, so he can't drive anything happens to him. Then he's saying like, you know, your friend's looking at me weird. And I smell more wine in the car. Like they literally stop people at gas stations to say, I smell marijuana in the car. I have to go and tow your vehicle. But that means the person can't even get home because you basically towed their vehicle. Like there's so many things that- And it comes at a cost. And as a poor yep. person, that's a tax. Keep going. I'm sorry. It, it, it just, it never, it never stops. Cause even another, even another situation where um, this guy was taking care of this, um, of this special needs person and they was running around and, and the person was trying to keep them calm. And the police showed up and the guy was on the floor with his hands up and they shot him in the thigh. And then he asked the officer, why you shoot me? And he was like, officer, I don't know. And I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, he had his hands up on the floor and he, there was no reason to shoot him. He was not, he was not a threat. He didn't do anything. He didn't resist or nothing, but he still got shot. Or people getting stopped for traffic violations that they used to search your vehicle and whatnot, like, uh, or someone like that's moving around saying, why, why are you moving? Like, what were you doing? Like, every time in many cases on camera and the thing is many officers like because i know people talk about body cams but sometimes you stop the body cams many times we hear that the body cam wasn't even on and you ask yourself why is the body cam not even on even in my area like um apparently they had over they had like a like 30 or something 60 body cams for over a thousand officers so that means if you were to have something happen to you they would not catch that because they don't have much body cams anyway. There's not much for them for the body cams anyway. And they would turn it off or they would like not even try to show the footage and they would try to like edit the footage. Like there's so many things, there's so many um, processes that goes through when you look at these cases. Like the, the only thing that you can do as a person is record it because, you know, that's basically you trying to protect yourself legally from being like lied about and having someone trying to, you know, make up stories about you because they're, they're an authority. They have, they have the authority to make up lies and be believed because they're officers and people believe that officers are inherently trying to protect the community despite the evidence of them actually terrorizing the community. So like, and there's another situation where this guy was at school and like doing this work, um, work, uh, work study, picking up trash around and this officer came around and he was like, hey man, can you give me your ID and whatnot? And then he was like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? He's like, where, where, you, where your dorm at? And he was like, what do you mean where my dorm is at? I won't have to give you that information. And then, you know, the officer brought all these other officers, they surrounded him. And they said like, you know, your, uh, your arms is like, I'm not armed. This is just a tool for picking up trash. And then he was like, what do you mean be calm? You, you guys are all surrounding me. You, all, you guys all have guns. You can kill me right now. Like y'all can literally kill me. And it took for a white college professor to show up for them to take him seriously that he actually was a part of the um, dorm. Like he was a part of the college. This happens constantly. Another situation where they had a, a officer from New York who was seemingly off duty, and this was uh, related back to the um, previous conversation, where he went into this black woman's home, broke into her home, he was drunk. And then he basically uh, says, you know, uh, he threatens her saying he would like snap her neck and called her the N word with a hard ER, like everything. And then 
she recorded it and got it on like cam a camera and audio recording and they went to court and he was like um he pleaded uh no no case or something like it was something and then she was like you know we got it on you know audio like you know you can't you can't just act as if you didn't do this and didn't say this you know and then they was asking what is a what is this person doing the police if they're saying this to me this happened last year this happened last year there's there's a lot of cases where you know um black like like a black woman got killed by an officer that went into the home and I think like they even know it was not even his home or something like this happens too often. Even when, even when like uh, back then, even on white people, there was one situation with a white kid where they investigate him for, like for years saying that he killed this old woman when like all he did was walk to school one day and he saw a body and he thought it was a mannequin. And then he went to school and they went to his room. They did all this to him, but like they never actually investigated the case of the woman that died because he was at home and he was like just a teenager. And when he went to like, when he went to like uh, the military or something, they literally were still investigating him. And the only reason they was investigating him was so they could get somebody like convicted. Because they, they wanted to tell the public, like, oh, no, we're doing our jobs. But they're not doing their jobs. That's wild. Yeah, it, I don't even know what the percentage of murders that go unsolved are. But I feel like they spend more time on the drug stuff because they have to show wins somewhere. And that's low-hanging. Mm-hmm. Yep. They, this is yeah. constant. This happens all the time. Because the police are just people, like, they're just in the interest of the, those who have power. Like, they're not in the interest of us. And that's the that's the big problem right there. Like, they're not here to protect us. I, I don't really believe the police is, at least to me, here to protect and serve. Because, like, what what exactly is this doing to make sure that I'm safe and that my friends are safe? That's doing to make sure that we're safe. Like, how how is this over here? Like, this, there's, like, Bantu pointed out before, Bantu always points this out. White collar crime is like one of the biggest crimes that this country commits, and the officers don't do nothing about that. It's the opposite of them not being here to protect your family and my family. They're they're here to, to the extent that that you have black folks in your family, or you know, to basically they they're here to prosecute and hunt down and engage in violence and terrorize our communities. That's what they're here. That's their function. It's not just. I mean, you just look at the pattern, like the things you were just describing, with the exception of the one kind of unusual case at the end, and it happens everywhere all over the country. They're not accidentally or because of individual prejudice doing bad things to black people. That's what they get up in the morning and put their uniforms on to do. That's the, that's the function, the purpose they are serving, to terrorize a quarter of our country and to keep people oppressed and really you know, to do worse than that, we talked about 17,000 misclassified uh, deaths, overwhelmingly mm-hmm. black folks. Overwhelmingly more because the open source thing. I'm sure you're right. Can't, it's probably even more that we don't even, that that's probably wasn't even noticed. Like imagine the 1930s, how much they was neglecting that as well. Like it's, this is so much. Yep. It's probably even more. And this is, this is the like limits that it can like just get at the moment but if people were to go back and find more and that's hidden and not talked about because like even because like there's a there's a situation with Jonathan Kennedy uh where they were talking about Operation Northwood where basically this is a whole operation where they wanted to bomb themselves to you know enact war on Cuba and this is that this is what people use as a precursor to 9-11 like not necessarily that they said they did 9-11 but it's more of like it's possible that they can do this to themselves because they literally talked about it 40 years prior like all classified, 
it was very shocking because this is a now public thing to say Operation Northwood, JFK was like, no, we ain't going to do that. And it was like, what do you mean? Like, like you're not going to commit a terrorist attack on ourselves and blame it on people who didn't do it. Like, that's crazy. Um, Operation what? One more time. Just Northwood. Like, Operation North Northwood. Northwood. Okay. Yeah. So people can look it up. Oof. All right. Oh, we still got to go back to the article. Oof. Yep. Go ahead, Gabriel. You got to unmute yourself. I know Scorpio will be burning down the house and then you just want to start going. Go ahead. The richness, Sam. The richness. It's like an abundance that you've organized here. So I'm going to edit this out, but I've already... Okay, you want me to keep reading? Yes, let me pull it back up so the rest of us can read along. Recent officials repeatedly behaved as if their priority is not improving public safety or protecting the rights of residents, but maximizing the revenue that flows into city coffers sometimes going so far as to anticipate decreasing sales tax revenues and urging the police force to make up for the shortfall by ticketing more people. Often those tickets for minor offenses then turned into arrest warrants. Police officers were judged not only on the number of stops they made, but on the number of citations they issued. Officers routinely conduct stops that have little relation to public safety and a questionable basis in law, the report states, Issuing three or four charges in one stop is not uncommon. Officers sometimes write six, eight, or in at least one instance, 14 citations for a wow. single encounter. Where are you going? That's just a wow. Think about that. This is Think about you're a poor person. You don't have enough gas in your car to get to work, and you got to figure out how to pay six to Rent. This is like the cost of rent or something. That's and a lot if you of citation. Pay this citation. Now you no longer have a roof over your head. So what happens when you don't pay this citation? You get a warrant. What happens now? You're dodging the police. So when you see the police, you run, even if you didn't do shit. Go ahead. Right, and then you get shot. Some officers exactly. compete to see who can issue the most citations in a single stop. Capitalism at its finest. In one email, the police chief, who also oversees the municipal court brags to the city manager about how much revenue it is generating. Ignoring that conflict of interest is a recipe for a justice system that bleeds the powerless of their meager resources. Ferguson's municipal court judge, Ronald Brockmeyer, who was appointed by the city council, is well aware that his job performance is evaluated partly on how much revenue he generates from the bench. One 2011 internal report in Ferguson notes that Judge Brockmeyer made a list of what he has done to help in the areas of court efficiency and revenue. The next year, a city council member suggested that he should not be reappointed, arguing that he does not listen to the testimony, does not review the reports or the criminal history of defendants, and doesn't let all the pertinent witnesses testify before rendering a verdict. If you think those shortcomings disqualified him, think again. The report continues. The council member then addressed the concern that switching judges would slash could lead to loss of revenue arguing that even if such a switch did lead to a slight loss, I think it's more important that cases are being handled properly and fairly. The city manager acknowledged mixed reviews of Judge Brockmeyer's work, but urged that the judge can be that the judge be reappointed, noting that it goes without saying the city cannot afford to lose any efficiency in our courts, nor experience any decrease in our fines and forfeitures. Establishing these glaring perverse incentives these glaring perverse effectively compromising the city's criminal justice system to increase revenue 
is enough to disgrace Ferguson's leaders all on its own, whether one regards them as civic imbeciles or moral cretins. But the consequences of these misdeeds and other transgressions against residents can only be fully understood with stories of Ferguson's many victims. While I recommend reading the whole DOJ report, I'd gladly see it assigned to every high school or college student and state legislator in America. I'll focus the rest of this post on those stories and a few other particularly alarming fighting findings. As you read on, keep in mind that this is but a selection of horrors from the DOJ report, which describes a tiny selection of all police misconduct stories in Ferguson. One passage describes the way that Ferguson officials have criminalized being too poor to pay a ticket. In 2013 alone, the court issued over 9,000 warrants on cases stemming in large part from minor violations such as parking infractions, traffic tickets, or housing code violations. Jail time would be considered far too harsh a penalty for the great majority of these code violations, yet Ferguson's Municipal Court routinely issues warrants for people to be arrested and incarcerated for failing to timely pay related fines and fees. Under state law, a failure to appear in municipal court on a traffic charge involving a moving violation results in a license suspension. Ferguson has made this penalty more onerous by only allowing the suspensions to be lifted after payment of an owed fine is made in full. Here's how Ferguson officials wreak havoc on people's lives over the tiniest of infractions. We spoke with an African-American woman who has a still pending case stemming from 2007 when on a single occasion, she parked her car illegally. She received two citations and $151 fine plus fees. The woman who experienced financial difficulties in periods of homelessness over several years was charged with seven failure to appear offenses for missing court dates or fine payments on her parking tickets between 2007 and 2010. For each failure to appear, the court issued an arrest warrant and imposed new fines and fees. Can we pause right there? Yeah. I just want us to have a moment and just talk about this. I need, I need us to just really talk about this. How do you get out of this kind of debt when you don't have any money? You can't call anybody to help you. There is no help. You can't pick up extra hours. You can barely afford to feed your family. How do you survive like this? This is where the... Um... This, the disparate resources that we talk about is, is so critical because, you know, when you think about that $8 that is the median net worth of a black person in Boston, so much of that money has been spent on family members and friends who are in exactly this kind of problem. It's not just that you can't raise enough money. You know, it's not like you're, you're working and you're saving, but it's not just that you don't have assets. It's that what you earn, you're in a web of people who are prosecuted just like this all the time. It's one bill after the next. And disproportionately, whatever kind of scenario you come up with, black folks are targeted. And it's as much wealth as we can. So you start to do a little bit okay. You're, you're here. You're doing all right. You got a little money in the bank. But your brother needs some help with the rent. And your uncle needs some help because he's going into some program school or something like that. And so you're, you know, you're given here and you're given there. And now you don't have resources. And like you said, Sam, the day comes when you look around and no one's got any, everyone's been given when they could, but yeah. there's just not enough to go around. Y'all got anything, anybody else? Well, you also lose your job that you do have because oh, yeah. you don't have transportation. 
Mm -hmm. So it's just a vicious, you know, driving you right down into the ground. For so that they can have more money, income. But not to fix the streets or anything, you know, yeah. to pay themselves, go to conventions, things like that. Like that. Go ahead, Scorpio. I know you had something. I just, just, um, it's just uh, crazy that, uh, that people aren't really thinking about the circumstances in which, because they're always talking about the person that's being victimized and they're talking about the person that's doing the antagonism. Um, because they always tell the uh, victimized that you got to do this, you got to do that. But it's like, as you said, like, how do you get out of this without any money? It's like somebody telling me like, hey, like, you know, I watch a YouTube video and they say, hey, this is how you can make your own cake. And I'm like, well, I don't even have the oven to make the cake. I don't even have the, the pan to make the cake. All I got is, I guess, my hands, but there's nothing to you. There's nothing I can use my hands with. So I cannot make the cake. And he was like, you just have to try. And I'm like, try what? Like, I would think to myself, I'm a 12-year-old um, boy and um, my family don't got much. So I guess I'll just not do it. It's like, you know, when people say, you don't even have any boots, how can you, how can you uh, put yourself out of the boot when you don't have any boots in the first place? Oh, dear. Um. seem obvious but I personally don't feel that anyone should be starting starting and struggling in this world today like I turned around one day and it was one of those we saw one earlier there was a you know you can adopt a child and send them 24 days 24 dollars a month and change their lives and you know, what about here um, it, there's just no reason to allow this anymore You sound like a socialist, Patricia. Yeah, I kind of do. <laughs> but it's not a system that is stable that people can rely on. And why should people be ground in the ground for, you know, uh, hate and prejudice and just to maintain control all, all over the money of the world? It's, you know, so anyway, I saw this commercial on TV. It was like 20 years ago. And I turned around and went, that's dumb. <laughs> Why are they asking for money to donate? It's a structural problem. You know, just giving, donating money, I mean, it helps, but it's not, it's a band-aid. And then yeah. billionaires say, oh, well, uh, they donate money and they do good works. Well, on the other hand, they're causing pain and suffering and poisoning us. Don't, don't want to work on the climate change problems. Don't want to listen to Black Americans. Um, it's absurd. No, it is. Anand Gerdes has a good book about that. Winner takes what's it called? Winner yeah. takes all. Where he talks about that, how they white, how they uh, how they whitewash their uh, their terrible records through charity. We'll have to do a whole episode on that because that's stuff that we haven't talked about on Reset Race that I would love to get into because I'm a nerd. I'm all over the place. I watch everything. I read everything. But um, yeah. Oh my goodness. Do we have anything else before we go back into the rest of just reading this article? Yeah. 
for each failure to appear, the court issued an arrest warrant and impo imposed new fines and fees. From 2007 to 2014, the woman was arrested twice, spent six days in jail, and paid $550 to the courts for the event stemming from this single instance of illegal parking. Court records show that she twice attempted to make partial payments of $25 and $50, but the court returned those payments, refusing to accept anything less than payment in full. One of those payments was later accepted, but only after the court's letter rejecting payment by money order was returned as undeliverable. This woman is now making regular payments on the fine. As of December 2014, over seven years later, despite initially own, owing a $151 fine and having already paid $550, she still $541. Older folks face an extra burden, but seem to get no slack. A 90-year-old man had a warrant issued for his arrest after he failed to timely pay the five citations FPD issued to him during a single traffic stop in 2013. An 83-year-old man had a warrant issued against him when he failed to timely resolve his derelict auto violation. A 67-year-old woman told us she was stopped and arrested by a Ferguson police officer for an outstanding warrant for failure to pay a trash removal citation. She did not know about the warrant until her arrest, and the court ultimately charged her $1,000 in fines, which in $100 monthly increments despite being on a limited fixed income. We have heard similar stories from dozens of other individuals and have reviewed court records documenting many additional instances of similarly harsh penalties, often for relatively minor violations. Here's an incident that caused a Ferguson resident to lose a job he had held for years. In the summer of 2012, a 32-year-old African-American man sat in his car cooling off after playing basketball in a Ferguson public park. An officer pulled up behind the man's car and demanded the man's social security number and identification. Without any cause, the officer accused the man of being a pedophile, referring to the presence of children in the park, and ordered the man out of his car for a pat-down, although the officer had no reason to believe the man was armed. The officer also asked to search the man's car. The man objected, citing his constitutional rights. In response, the officer arrested the man, reportedly at gunpoint, charging him with eight violations of Ferguson's municipal code. One charge, making a false declaration, was for initially providing the short form of his, his first name, Mike, e.g. Mike instead of Michael, in an address which, although legitimate, was different from the one on his driver's license. Another charge was for not wearing a seatbelt, even though he was seated in a parked car. The officer also charged the man both with having an expired operator's license and with having no operator's license in his possession. I want to pause here and just point out that it's super frustrating to me that I don't know, although I know the demographics of Ferguson, I think it would just be nice if they were pointing out who of these people are Black and who aren't. Because I think it's a different oh, story. Yeah. If you don't, don't make that clear. Um, I think we know who these people are, but not everyone does. And people will say like, oh, it could be anyone. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I'll continue unless someone wants, else wants to say something. Y'all got anything? Does anybody got anything or can we keep going? Okay. Um, 
here's a small part of the evidence that the city is racially biased against black residents. Thank you. It's like they hurt me. <laughs> With respect to speeding charges brought by FPD, the evidence shows not only that African-Americans are represented at disproportionately high rates overall, but also that the disparate impact of the FPD's enforcement practices on African-Americans is 48% larger when citations are issued not on the basis of radar or laser, but by some other method, such as the officer's own visual assessment. These disparities are also present in FPD's use of force. Nearly 90% of documented force used by FPD officers was used against African-Americans. Mm. I feel like we just get so used to these sentences, we hear them. Nearly 90% of documented force used by FPD officers was against African-Americans. What in the world? In every canine bite incident for which racial information is available, the person bitten was African-American. Are they talking about police dogs, Sam? I think so. So we're still in the 1960s. Jesus. African-Americans are 68% less likely than others to have their cases dismissed by the court and are more likely to have their cases last longer and result in more required court encounters. African-Americans are at least 50% more likely to have their cases lead to an arrest warrant and account for 92% of cases in which an arrest warrant was issued by the Ferguson Municipal Court in 2013. Available data show that of those actually arrested by FPD only because of an outstanding municipal warrant, 96% are African-American. Mm. Our investigation indicates that this disproportionate burden on African-Americans cannot be explained by any difference in the rate at which people of different races violate the law. No kidding. Rather, our investigation has revealed that these disparities occur, at least in part, because of unlawful bias against and stereotypes about African-Americans. We have found substantial evidence of racial bias among police and courts that in Ferguson, for example, we discovered emails circulated by police supervisors and court staff that stereotype racial minorities as criminals, including one email that joked about an abortion by an African-American woman being a means of crime control. Here's an occasion when the Ferguson Police Department violated the Fourth Amendment. In July 2013, police encountered an African-American man in a parking lot while on their way to arrest someone else at an apartment building. Police knew that the encountered man was not the person they had come to arrest. Nonetheless, without even reasonable suspicion, they handcuffed the man, placed him in the back of a police car, and ran his record. It turned out he was the intended arrestee's landlord. The landlord went on to help the police enter the police person's unit to effect the arrest, but he later filed a complaint alleging racial discrimination and unlawful detention. Ignoring the central fact that they had handcuffed a man and put him in a police car despite having no reason to believe he had done anything wrong, a sergeant vigorously defended FPD's actions, characterizing the detention as minimal and pointing out that the car was air conditioned. This is just heartbreaking. I, I don't want to talk about... Um, there's an example I want to talk about, but I don't want to talk about it now. Um, but I do, I think I just want to say first that these are, the number of them is unbelievable, but sadly, this is a minor, this kind of abuse in terms of how it impacts people as bad as it is, is not the worst stuff that happens. Um, and, but the pattern it represents is, I think, representative of things that happen all over the country. 
and it's just routine and we just accept it. That's... Make sure it right? And then that's it. No, it's, it's, it's a lot, right? Like you said, it takes a lot to reproduce this system. It's, well, I don't even think you'll be able to see me because of the light. So, but Not it just either. takes a lot to reproduce this system, right? Like it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Like all of us have to play a part in it for it to keep continuing because we have to ignore it, right? Right. Okay. So I want to play this video. At any point, we can hit say stop. And uh, after that, we'll do final thoughts and I'll let everybody go. And I look forward to seeing you guys next week at our at our adjusted time just for this week, which will be 12 Eastern for next Sunday. You're getting up at nine? I always, I'm always up. I get up early. Oh. My puppies get up around 530. So that's around the time I do. Yeah. Crazy, right? All right, here we go and play this for us. Oh, let me turn on the sound, that would be good too. There's a kind of a fundamental basis for post-traumatic slave syndrome. How many of you are familiar with post-traumatic stress disorder? So these are things, I mean, most of you are, are, are people who are in the field that have done the work. You're here representing uh, the people who are really in the trenches, and I appreciate and respect that. Uh, the theory very often, uh, when people hear it, post-traumatic slave syndrome, I try to kind of get at uh, uh, kind of what's going on in the room. There are, there's ambivalence, there's feelings of, you know, what? Come on now. What are we saying now about the slavery thing? It's over. You know, it's get over it. <laughs> you know, it's, we're done. We have that kind of feeling. And how possibly is she drawing a connection between something that happened so long ago in contemporary society? You know, come on, are you trying to find an excuse? Are you trying to blame people? You know, these are the natural kind of knee-jerk reactions to hearing the term post-traumatic slave syndrome. However, I would I would submit to you that, you know, my it's based on research. So uh, I did about six years of of research specifically looking at violence. My area of, of, of focus is violence. And I'll cover that in my, um, my PowerPoint. Also, some of you may not be able to see points of the PowerPoint, uh, but we're going to make it available to you. So you don't have to worry about it. I, there's a website where you'll be able to download my PowerPoint. Isn't that correct? Is that, did I say that right? OK. So that, that part you don't have to worry about. But I kind of want to set the ground so that we can all advance and move forward together. Now, the reason I do that and the reason why I begin that way is because there's an assumption, a fundamental assumption, in a room this size with people very well educated, people very well exposed, that we're all entering this discussion at the same level. And we are not. I can guarantee you we are not. We all have our ideas and our beliefs, and then we all have our experience. For example, the people of color that are in the room all the people of color that are in this room are arriving in this room at a different level because they have lived in this skin. And we're rarely given any kind of appreciation or understanding of what you have to live with walking through the world with this skin. So it, you're, you kind of come in at a different level of awareness about the discussion. And then you have folks that come into this discussion that are educated around it, that are clear about it, but can't really 
empathize their way through it. In other words, it's not a feeling thing, it's a cerebral thing. So some people stay intellectual because that's a level of comfort, nothing wrong with that. But very different from the person who lives in the skin, it is personal and it is emotional. <laughs> okay, so all of that's going on in this room even before we get started. But as people commit it, you know, it may get a bit uncomfortable, but that's okay because it's been uncomfortable living in this skin. <laughs> it's been uncomfortable. And we have to learn how to deal with that discomfort and stay in the room. So when we look at the fundamental premise of trauma, and we understand the nature of trauma, we know that there have been other groups that we've looked at the etiology of, their co of contemporary behavior based on multi-generational trauma. One group, Jewish Holocaust, families of Jewish Holocaust, and the fact that the Jewish community is very, very clear about honoring that Holocaust. So much so that Spielberg will probably make another movie. And I'm not mad at him. Because what he's doing is ensuring that the generations that come will never forget the Holocaust and its impact upon Jewish people. You'll look at folks throughout the world, even aboriginal folks in the United States, where more focus is being done on what colonialism has done. We've looked at uh, Japanese internment. We've looked at Australian aboriginal folks. We've looked at multi-generational impact of trauma on people who have had tragedies, like the tsunami victims. We'll look at everybody. But when it comes to looking at Africans, there's a visceral response. Oh, come on, let's not. Why are you? And it's a curious thing as a social scientist to me that you get so much pushback when you talk about Africa. And we look at the legacy of slavery. You get so much pushback. But more importantly is why do you get the pushback? See, as a social scientist, I'm less concerned with the material, which I'm clear about. I'm more interested in why the behavior. Why is there such reticence at looking at this issue. And there's, the answer is, when you peel back the layers of this, we peel back everybody's layers. Everyone gets naked in this room, and that's not always comfortable. It's also very comfortable to talk at, about the other's pathology. And the reason why I think that becomes important is so that when we begin to engage in this discussion, we don't find ourselves falling victim to the fear, guilt, all of that stuff that's no, not useful to anyone. It's not useful. This means we're going to peel the layers back. And while 246 years, as it were, in American history of American chattel slavery, starting with 1619 to the ratification of the 13th Amendment in the United States, we're looking at 246 years of American chattel slavery. And it's very comfortable. And I think to some degree, people can say, you can't have 246 years of trauma and expect that nothing happened especially when that trauma was followed by more. And let's just call the trauma what it was. It was a genocide. Like, I just want to put it in context. That was the first one. I'm going to keep playing a little bit more. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm playing the wrong video, y'all. Oh, I'm so glad I double-checked. See, stuff be bouncing on me. I liked what she said. Um, when we peel back these layers, we peel back everybody's layers. Because I think that's uh, a lot of times these conversations are like people are defensive, you know, they hide and don't want to talk about their how we're complicit. You know, you don't face history until you complace yourself in it. 
That's true. Cause like, and that's true because I didn't care about, I didn't like history when I was in school because you know, they feed you a bunch of stuff you don't care about. But as soon as I got out of, like as soon as I started reading as an adult and started getting into, the, you know, really getting into it, like, man, when I tell you, I learned. So I feel like a lot of uh, public schools is like uh, an indoctrination method for a lot of white people. Like, cause uh, this stuff, because I think looking back when I was a kid consulting that, cause my father, he was born in Jamaica, but he came here and he told me, and he was telling me like, who's the first U.S. president of the United States? And I look back at him as an adult, like you really wanted me to know who the first president of the United States was, who some, like it was a white man who owned black people. Like I hope, like it just to me is like, why, why should I, why should I feel proud that I know a slave master? What I looked at him like, what have you taught me any uh, person, like a, a president or prime minister of Jamaica? And he didn't have anything to say. It was like I wish. I knew that before I knew the first president of the United States, like, because they make you celebrate people who just didn't like you. Like if they was alive today, they will look at you like, why is the N-word in, you know, schools? Why are they near white children, right? Like people, people neglect that fact. People neglect that reality. And I just feel like it's an indoctrination method for many white folks. You're muted. I said, does anybody have any, I said, that was really good. I said, does anybody have anything else? So uh, if not, I'll share. I, I actually found the video because it's on the Reset Race page that I wanted to use. But I guess it was good because she really did a good explanation, right? So everything happens for a reason, right? Anybody got anything? Bantu, you got anything? All right. I think to myself, if I were up here in front of you right now, and this is going to become very important as you move. I move into the other slides. Um, if I stomped a puppy to death out here, up here, just a little puppy, and stomped it right here to death in front of you, most of you would need therapy. And I would be arrested probably faster than killing a black man for killing a puppy. Now, I want you to look at this photo very closely, and I want you to see who's in it. More important than the man hanging, because you got to understand the lynchings that occurred in America happened after slavery. Not during. Thousands of lynchings happened after slavery because this is a reaction to white fear of what we would do once free. But we didn't create a vigilante group to take out white people, but they did create a vigilante group to take us out now that we're free. See, that happened after slavery. They were called the what? The Ku Klux Klan. They don't wear hoods anymore. They wear suits. I keep seeing but this meme going well. around on Twitter All over the where world. they're talking about like, of course, the grand, the grandbabies so, of, you know, the people look at who who's in a picture. did this, like you yelling look at, at the girl, this little girl trying to go into school. You can't school. see her closely, but she's actually don't want to learn CR, like, don't want them to learn CRT. Smirking. Let's go further. Now, remember, These people let's go saw back to the what the Jews did here. to the Nazis. And they know if the tide changes, their old asses are going to jail because a lot of these people are alive right now. Why aren't we doing facial recognition software? Why aren't we going and looking these people up? Since I always take a moment to kick the shit out of the white people. remember to go and get it. There's a hundred year old man. Can we talk about how the white people, I don't want to talk about it, but basically with what she's saying. Walker, hundred 
y'all care more about y'all dogs than you do black people and literally the white people's party has a section in it where they talk about animals but there is no black agenda or reparations on their but they have a very nice robust plan these people's families are alive right now and everybody who did this are alive right now this is why we can't talk about anything on that before i keep going but just think about what talk about white like the lack of this is why we can't talk about any of these things because when we do, the real outcome is Patricia Scorpio Gabriel. The same way, if I go and kill, if I go, if I go find Patricia and kill her, and I get away for twenty years, and they find me, they gonna lock my ass up. It, it's not gonna matter that Sam's sixty going on seven. Where you are, and murder's murder. You know, they're I'm just, sorry. it's a problem that's far away and it's partly media and just the way they're trying to ignore Nobody that. cares about the old Nazis that they dredge up when they're 100 years old, 90 years old. So Nobody says that. that happened 70 Somehow. years ago, 80 years ago. No, they put their ass on fucking trial. I think people need to hear it out Let's loud. go, Carol Bryant. Yeah. Let's dust this bitch up. That's the one who real. lied on it's it until. Let's rock. the conditioning of the country. Like that's okay, why sorry, when something happens over, I don't really like to go hard on outcrying people, from Americans. I'm not going hard on that's why there can be so much, um, so much Some empathy for refugees and you know, people are and, um, children people in cages still. at the border. Like people felt that they, there's an outrage and there's an outcry, but there's black children in cages for in. decades. It looks like. You know, you know. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Like, I agree like we've been putting mean. black children in in cages and prisons for a very long time. So, it's just the it's just the conditioning of this country just to make people not care. And I just want to take a moment to kind of go like I don't want to go super deep, but I went through this in the Humanist Report, and I think I'll probably just throw it in there about the conditioning. But they conditioned you to be this way. Like they would tar and feather white people who wanted to, like it. You know, if this was if this was a hundred years ago, Gabe, Sinead, Patricia, they would be killed for doing this. They would be killed or if not beaten, you know, what all kinds of things could happen to their family just a hundred years ago. Shit, let's not even go a hundred years ago, like mm, 1960s. So we need to really, we need to really start understanding what this is so we can kind of move forward. I'm gonna put in the video because I think I put, I actually did a really good job of explaining it in there. And I don't want to take up too, too much time because I want to actually keep getting through the video. Um, do we have anything else or should I keep going through the video guys? Oh no, Scorpio, you had something, right? Please, please go. Um, it was, it, it's the, uh, the Subaru commercial in which they basically uh, during the commercial, they used BLM imagery to talk about animal rights. It was like PETA. And many people were offended. This happened in 2020. So it's about to be two years for, since this commercial. And people were, were not having it. They were not having it because uh, they did the knee, the animals did the knee. Oh, you're muted. Oh, I was saying, could you remember to send that to me? Because I want to make sure that that is in the video. I'll send it. Thank you. Very short, like commercial, and it, it people were insulted. That's uh really why I'd say when you say that they care more about their dogs and do care about black people. That's been the thing throughout history. People care more about the dogs. Everyone has humanity and uh, empathy for like dogs and everybody else before they even you know promote rights for black folks. Because you know th that 
apparently black people don't uh, deserve anything and that they are asking for a braid of justice then they're trying to get handouts for labor that they like because everyone talks about hard work in this country but in reality like this country was built by people who really exploited others like they didn't have to work so hard because the people they exploited were working hard for them because if they didn't they would die yes they stole our earned inheritance go ahead that's, that's hard to say okay i'm gonna go i'm gonna get back to this video then this little girl is not is not disturbed by this but she should be shouldn't she people always ask me and go joy what was the impact on white people there it is right there can't feel any empathy for him none zero zip there's a little one back here even smaller because whatever she's been taught or told, socialized to believe, makes him no longer human. That's the greatest danger to white people is that they can't feel it. And there's a reason why white people can't feel what we're talking about. My God, what would you then feel? It's tough. So I've got to believe, oh, it's all over now. It's not my fault. I don't benefit. It's not a big deal. Let's move on. It's not all of those things. But we don't say that to Jewish people. I dare you. But you have to understand. I'm not going to get super deep into that, but you saw what happened when Bree Bree just told a Jewish woman that she should try to de-radicalize Nazis. She didn't even go, she didn't even go full, full over the line. Well, she went over the line, but you understand she didn't she didn't go the way they come at black people. Right. And you saw the type of heat she took. So I'm gonna keep going because I don't want to get super deep in it, but I just I just wanted to point that out because she's making a point right there. Like it's you only get you only do this to black folk. Understand when you unearth this one, that's what we did to our children. Let's move forward. This is a similar photo to the one that uh, is used in um, Denzel's movie. Now, uh, and again, most important, this is a man that's being burned. Also, I won't read the depiction, but there are newspaper accounts of this. It's written in a book called 100 Years of Lynching by Ginsburg. No pictures, just newspapers that say not only did they burn him, they decapitated him, cut him into pieces, and used parts of his body as things to put on mantles. So people would say, get me a tongue, would you, or a liver, a little crisp, so I could put it on the mantle. Now, again, I want you to look at the folks. I want you to look at who's here. We're not talking about the toothless, big gut, hooded wonder, are we? We're looking at plain old, common Dressed up, folks. They're squeezing, please, I want my picture taken. Are you following me? This is somebody's cousin, uncle, somebody. These people are... So and the ability to do alive. that, dehumanize this man and rob them of their humanity all at the same time. All at the same time. That is the most dangerous, treacherous thing that can happen. What did Hitler do? He... Sorry, I want to take a moment. I got something for you. I got something. Hold on. I keep seeing this meme going around on Twitter 
where they're talking about like, of course, the grand, the grandbabies of, you know, the people who did this, like yelling at the girl, trying to go into school, don't want to learn CR, don't want them to learn CRT. Let's go further. These people saw what the Jews did to the Nazis, and they know if the tide changes, their old asses are going to jail because a lot of these people are alive right now. Why aren't we doing facial recognition software? Why aren't we going and looking these people up? There's a picture right now on Twitter. I'll have to try to remember to go and get it. There's a hundred year old man, a hundred year old Nazi that they are trying. He's Walker hundred folded over. Try it. Let's rock. This is America. Murder, statutes for murder forever. Let's go. Where's some justice? These people's families are alive right now. These people who did this are alive right now. This is why we can't talk about critical race theory. This is why we can't talk about white fragility. This is why we can't talk about any of these things. Because when we do, the real outcome is we gotta follow the law. The same way if I go and kill, if I go, if I go fire Patricia and kill her, and I get away for 20 years and they find me, they gonna lock my ass up. It, it's not gonna matter that Sam's 60 going on 70. Murder's murder. I'm sorry. Nobody cares about the old Nazis that they drudge up when they're 100 years old, 90 years old. Nobody says that happened 70 years ago, 80 years ago. No, they put their ass on fucking trial. Let's go, Carol Bryant. Let's dust this bitch up. That's the one who lied on Emmett Till. Let's rock. Okay, I'm sorry, y'all. I had a moment. I don't really like to go hard on the people, but I'm not going hard on white people, but I'm going hard on the murderers. Some people are descendants of murderers, and those same people are racist, evil people still. Bantu wants to chime in, it looks please, like. Please do. Yeah, I was just going to say that, like, I agree with you when you say, like, looking into these old cases or even, like, putting a lot of cases that wasn't, like, written down on the books because, you know, they just was talking about how they found the um, Zodiac killer. So it was, like, invest that same type of, like, research. Oh, into, I like, didn't know that. Oh, shit. Yeah, you didn't know that? Yeah, no. they just was talking about that all over the Internet about them. Finding the Zodiac Killer. So it was like, who if y'all find the Zodiac Killer, yeah, who it was is some it? old dude who died long, like, I think back in the 80s or something like that. Ah, shit. Hold on, let me look at the right way. Let me look at the jail so we can prove a mm -hmm. point. Go ahead, Bantu. Oh, that was it. That, that was all I was saying. Like, okay. if y'all can find the Zodiac Killer, then we know that the information and research is out there for y'all to also dig in these old cold cases of lynchings and you know all other types of white terror you know that occurred throughout the history so you know like it, to me i know the research is out there i know they have methods out there to like look into this you know what i mean i'm just backing up what you were saying oh yeah i'm pretty sure people got these postcards and y'all know who your grandparents are quit fucking with me mm -hmm. you know who me ma is they might got books and records and memorabilia of like body parts yep. and stuff that they didn't took from these lynchings and stuff like that if you look deep into their houses and whatnot you never know what you might find because you also hear stories about that when it comes to nat turner and after the rebellion 
how they really auctioned off parts and pieces of the Nat Turner and sold them after they lynched them. You know what I mean? So I know there's probably a lot of like old like households and little storages that's probably filled with all kinds of memorabilia and whatnot. Of, you know, their previous terrorist years and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I right. some dude. Here we go. I'm about to link the article right here. Please do. We're gonna. So the good thing about mm -hmm. us dropping all this stuff is that in the chat is I can just copy and paste all this stuff into the description box. So we have a lot of links. So for those of y'all who really want to go through this stuff, y'all gonna have fun because it's a lot of links. Dehumanized human beings put babies in ovens. Anything that robs us of our humanity is a danger to everyone. And that is what's going on with people of African descent all over the world, because not only did it get done here, but who do we tell the entire world we told these people don't deserve any value? Everyone wants to be American, not y'all. 15,000. But when we go, I mean, I literally go to countries all over the world. America sets the standard and thank God for what happened later. Let's move forward. So a lot of people start saying, well, y'all got free, right? Y'all are free. Everything's fine. Because <laughs> I see, see, whenever you talk about post-traumatic slave syndrome, people get locked there. So there's a myth that after slavery ended, the playing field was leveled. Was it? Remember, all the lynchings occurred after slavery. That wasn't during, after slavery. So you had black sharecropping. Now, we didn't get a lot of black history in our schooling. I have four degrees and three of them advanced degrees. Never did I get black history. I got about two pages of black history and one of them, what page was a picture? And there was a picture of little folks with the cabin. You probably saw the same pictures, a little cabin. I didn't even get a cabin. The little guy on the porch with the banjo. Little children running, frolicking about eating watermelon. Can I just take this moment to be honest? I do not remember learning about slavery in school. I do not remember learning about slavery in school. Okay, I was gonna say that. Everybody happy? And we certainly need little Mary and little, little Johnny to believe that they were, they were happy. <laughs> the slaves were happy people. And they had a nice place to live. Because we couldn't have them feeling cognitive what? Not little Mary. She can't start questioning what grandpa did. So I want you to see this because those are leftover slave quarters. He's a sharecropper. So now let's go back and take a look at sharecropping. Now these are folks that were slaves, no longer slaves. Any state. Decided I'm going back. <laughs> to be a sharecropper on the same plantation that I was enslaved. Why would you do that? You all heard about Katrina, yes? Yeah. See, I was there. <laughs> My family's from Louisiana. I went to the Ninth Ward. Sometimes you can't pay attention to what the news says. It's important to actually go eyeball what's going on, which was very interesting, because it was one of the most horrific events I'd ever seen and probably will ever see in my life. Well, black folks were just simply treated differently. Did you notice that? Here's the good news about Katrina. Everybody noticed it. So all the rest of the world where we learn, send us your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, your democracy, your equality. They said, what happened with that Katrina thing? All that stuff y'all talked about. Well, let me read this. This is from Associated Press. 
taken straight from the newspaper. In the front, actually, the top part here is actually a woman, but they think it's a man. Anyway, it says, a young man walks through chest-deep flood water after looting a grocery store in New Orleans on Tuesday, August 30th, 2005. Same body of water down here, excuse me. Two residents wade through chest-deep water after finding bread and soda from a local grocery store. Now, same event, same water. White people, black people. We've told you what you see now. That removes your what? Distance, because these people can't be perceived as looting. They're white people. White people don't loot. Now, the truth of the matter is, I don't care what any of them are doing. It doesn't matter, but I'm going to still the social conscience by letting you know, don't forget, this is a looter. Matter of fact, what you last heard was that they were looters and rapists. Did you not? So don't they deserve it? That wasn't back in, oh, I don't know, slavery though, was it? Now we're going to kind of move into operationalizing that to look at what is it, how does it, how do we begin to uh, connect that, that behavior, those, that history to what we're dealing with and what you're dealing with right now and what we're seeing. And very often people say, well, is everything post-traumatic slave syndrome? Obviously that, that would, you know, trivialize all the work. You know, we cannot lay squarely on the shoulders of post-traumatic all the problems that we see, we see nor can we uh, place all the problems squarely on the shoulders of white people or any of the above. So hopefully we won't um, digress into anything that is that foolish in terms of a discussion. Because, you know, it, that's another thing that happens in terms of trying to, to deal with the pushback around this. Uh, then we move into extremes and it tends to dilute the realities that are going on. So um, uh, hopefully we're way beyond all that. Well, now she's saying everything is post-traumatic. No, I'm not. Um, and most of my work, uh, my background is really in the field, doing, um, you know, doing work in the community and grassroots. That's where my, my training was in terms of my clinical work. And just, you know, the fact that I've always been, uh, this work started on the ground. It didn't start here. Matter of fact, the attention, I got the attention of places like Oxford and Harvard and, you know, the um, Ivy League and major institutions, even even the, uh, the FBI, you know, but those were things that happened after um, I did started doing the work on the grassroots level. Um, and so it's for me, my, my commitment is to healing. So this is not an, an exercise uh, in some kind of broad intellectual esoteric. It's really about how do we then take this information and help a person extricate themselves from uh, behavior that they've learned and or been socialized to believe black and white and everyone in, in the middle that's been affected by this. Um, what do we do? So this is kind of looking at contemporary uh, kind of reflection of the yeah, we can actually finish it up there because there's only a few more minutes and I want us to have plenty of time for closing thoughts. So please go ahead, Gabriel. Okay, uh, I just I just wanted to say um, that's I really appreciate her. I really do appreciate um, the, the hard work that she and Danette is also doing in, in healing people who, uh, you know, white folks who are, um, you know, part of this, this legacy or whatever. I, I don't that's less important to me than other work. And I don't actually care about those people very much. I care about some people who are struggling and doing the work. You know, I automatically have, um, 
you know, feeling, I, I feel like Patricia and Sinead and all of our, all the people who have come here, these are people who are traveling to the space of the work. So I'm worried about these people. I, I care about what happens to them. If, if they need help and I can help them, I'm going to help them. I understand that there are hardcore racist white people that some people are concerned about trying to bring to a place of reconciliation or, oh, uh, <laughs> reconciliation or, you know, um, trying to take me out. Was that a bird? Because, you know, we yes. can only see the reaction. Yes, it was a it whole big ass, like the crow came for me, y'all. That's, that's trippy because we could only see it, but it was kind of, anyway, I'm saying there's only so many people we have to worry about. And, and to really get down to brass taxes and we talk about how the sausage is made, all I'm really worried about is whatever number I need to get a reparation bills passed. So if I, if I had a level of precision where I had the exact count down and you're like the, the one extra white person after that, that comes and says, I need some help and you need to help me with my racist problems or whatever, I'm not interested. And it's not because I don't care. It's, I just don't have infinite empathy and I'm really not, I don't feel like um, I'm a bad person for not caring as much about the perpetrators. Because the people are doing this every single day. So you can say you're doing the work and you're doing whatever else. But unless I have overwhelming evidence that you're actually engaged in keeping this virus at, under control that is in your system that can erupt at any time, unless I have proof that you're doing that, I consider you contagious. And so I'd rather keep you away from me and mine than be like, I'm going to take a chance. So I'm not that. Other people are. I bless them for it. That's not me. Wow, that was deep. Uh, Scorpio, being to either one of y'all want to go next? Because I want to let y'all get in there. On and then after that, I want Patricia to go. But because Scorpio and Bantu have been very frustrated with the Eurocentric left. So I told him, I was like, you're going to like my white people. So I want one of them to go after Gabriel just so they can have a moment to respond. And then after that, Patricia, I'd like for you to go. And then we'll go ahead, Scorpio. Well, like I was say I don't have much to say, but like you know, y'all spin fire right now. Like a lot of what y'all saying about what's going on and what's occurring, you know what I mean? So, you know, I'm just here for the ride. Y'all pretty much in the points out. Okay, go ahead, Patricia. Trying, trying to click it. Um, yeah, I just feel like we get to a tipping point of, and I know there's also discussions amongst the Black American community and not everybody's quite yet convinced about the route to take. But I think it's a tipping point. We get enough white people that are sort of just unaware, which just seems incredible, but get enough, as many people to understand what's really happening, um, that it could happen, you know? Just need to get enough understanding out there. Right? Yeah. We make it so hard, but it really is simple. All right, Scorpio, you got you got anything? Um, I think we can easily accomplish it. I mean, I don't feel this is a. Uh, I mean, when I was younger, I looked at the world, I looked at the problems like you know poverty and everything, and I thought it was impossible. But that's because the world taught me, uh, not the world, but that's because the country was trying to make me feel as if this was the only possible um, uh, society that we can have. But um, 
you know, educating myself, knowing more, being more aware, I look at everything and I say, nah, this ain't that difficult. Like if, uh, if for people to know, like white people that want to know, what can I do? It's like, all they have, one easily, I look at white folks and like educate yourself. But another thing I would say is institutions and not just institutions, you can find a group that like, that is trying to educate themselves. Like how would someone know about the issues of another if they don't look into those issues? We got like a lot of books out there that will tell you what exactly one went through. Like I look at a white person and say, um, I'll look at them and say that you see that person right there that is getting, you know, that, or you see someone back then that was being, being enslaved, right? And, was, and they'd be like, yeah, I'd be like, so picture yourself enslaved. So, you know, are you telling me uh, you wouldn't fight for that person, that, that person's life not matter? And for them, it's like, they think about it in an argumental sense. They think about it in the sense of uh, like a debate or a philosophical sense. And I say, screw that. If somebody were to attack your best friend, your little sister, your mother, your father, what would you do? You fight for them, right? So like, if you were looking at that person, like, and you looked at that black person that was basically being treated like that, are you going to fight for them? And if, and you know, they have, they have to first really start thinking about what, what is humanity? What, what, constitutes as uh as as like value what constitutes that's important because you know you're telling me that that person right there is not important if you can't fight for that person if you can't fight for that person that you claim you care about you only care about that person so you know uh you're preaching, say, you're preaching so so uh, i can't be a class reductionist and say i care about black people nick nick chairman nick <laughs> i can't be talking about medicare for all as revolutionary Wait till I post this video that me and Scorpio were talking about this anarchist thing because you can't be revolutionary. But let's keep going. Sorry, never mind. Uh, I'll be taking jabs and digs, so let me stop. Go ahead. Because uh, I can I can see uh people learning, and that's if um if for one people are taught like you know people don't want CRT, but and some and some white people will try to fight for CRT, but I would look at that white those white people fight for CRT because like there's this is a pretty complicated uh situation. Uh, I would tell them, have y'all read CRT? And they said, no. And I'm like, don't defend something that you don't know. Because if you don't know it, how can you defend it? You better go read into that CRT and find out what CRT be talking about. And then you better understand that if it's being taught in school, you better, you better know who's teaching it. Because, you know, I, I always understood that. Because I understand a lot of people be saying what they are nowadays. And I always think to myself, you know, colleges and certain institutions are owned by the people that, that are trying to fight against you or they're being funded by the people that are trying to fight against you, or they have a really bad and racist past, like Duke University, which is, uh, you know, which is, which came to, came to form when uh, somebody from North Carolina, um, Wil Wilmington, I think, uh, basically, or some other place, they, they took that and transferred somewhere else, like a white person that basically was a, um, a slave owner or just another slave owner, they put it somewhere else, like where, where Duke University now stands right today. Uh, I will, I would say like, what, what, what exactly, because, um, you know, first is education, uh, but you have to understand who's teaching, who's teaching you? Who, uh, what, what uh, literature are you reading? Um, because if people really start thinking to themselves, you know how that uh, white kid basically punched his father or his stepfather for saying the N word, it's like, you have to start thinking what what are you really doing? Why what are you really fighting for? Like I think um I think uh it's it's easy to get there if people reevaluate re the situations, institutions, and systems. And one of the things that I can like tell them is 
then you got to create like a group or, you know, how people get homeschooled or people have these reading groups. Like, how about you have a reading group with your friends and y'all start reading these books and whatnot. Uh, start, uh, you know, maybe you can organize a, a voice call or video chat and y'all can start talking about and reading these books and finding out things and looking to what people were saying. Oh, I love uh, action steps. Oh, that's good. Offer, offer the resources, offer the services. And, you know, over time, start just think about it and question and, and reevaluate. Like, because, you know, I don't believe this is necessarily difficult because I have to remember the fact that they're teaching kids that slavery was good for us. Or you got the news saying this, you got the news saying that. Like, I look at folks like, you have to understand how they teach you to be racist in the first place. Because if you could be taught to be racist, then you could be taught to be something else. But you have to want it. I want to end there, exactly. actually. I think that was a really good ending, Scorpio. I want to thank everybody for coming. Patricia, I really want to thank. How was it to be on this side of it? You got to unmute yourself. <laughs> no, because I forget, too. It's you get, I'll remind you. I noticed it. that. Uh, not you, but all over the place it happens. Uh, what did you ask me? I asked you, how was it to be on this side of it? Because you're normally just, you're normally a listener. How was it to like participate? Um, it was, it was fine. I felt a little ner more nervous at the beginning, you know. I'm, I'm not used Are you to comfortable it. now? More comfortable, yes. Not totally comfortable. <laughs> Practice makes perfect, Patricia. We'll see you next week. You got yeah, it in see, your Patricia, calendar, right? See, tell him, I'm not scary. <laughs> no. <laughs> Patricia's I actually get scary. delighted when you get going. And then when you crack up, I love that too. <laughs> Man, I can't be serious all the time. But I right. appreciate you guys. My food just yeah. got here. We got 12 minutes till Mud's Bitter Dose starts. So I'm going to run over there because you know me. I stay monitoring the chat. So I appreciate all of you guys. I think this is going to be next Friday's episode. I deny everything but what I have all along admitted. The design on my part to free the slaves.